Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Legends would like to thank Quip, Warby Parker, Amazon Prime Video, The Great Courses Plus, and our supporters at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. <laughs> On the far eastern border of Kansas, nestled up against the Big Muddy, or Missouri River, is the charming little town of Atchison. Founded 164 years ago in 1854, Atchison has many distinctions that help it stand out in a sea of small towns in America's heartland. The one that brought us to it is that it is the birthplace of Amelia Earhart. But tonight's show is not about Amelia. It's about another home in Atchison, a home considered to be the most haunted house in the state, if not one of the most haunted houses in the country, the Sally House. The Sally House was built on a lot purchased in 1866 by Michael Croman Finney, or M.C. Finney. M.C. was a first-generation Irish immigrant, born in 1852 in Fermi, County Cork, Ireland. It is believed the house took around five years to complete and that the family was living in it by 1871. M.C. Finney had three surviving children. One of them was Charles C. Finney, or C.C. Finney. C.C. studied medicine and eventually opened a medical practice based out of the house which stands at 508 North 2nd Street. According to legend, a frantic loved one brought a young girl with acute appendicitis who was near death to the Finney home in a desperate bid to save her child. Dr. Finney realized that she needed to be operated on immediately if she were to survive and prepared to perform an emergency appendectomy. The details that follow have been presented a few different ways throughout history, but the crux of the matter is that the little girl, Sally, was not adequately sedated. She woke up either before the surgery, or most say during the surgery, screaming in pain and terror before looking Dr. Finney in the eye and dying on the surgery table in the house. Many folks believe it is that little girl, Sally, who haunts the house to this day, making it one of the most active and well-documented ongoing hauntings in the U.S. 
That is the origin of the astonishing legend of the Sally House. Or is it? Tonight, we take on the Sally House, and we're going more in depth on this than anyone has ever gone before. We've done extensive research, including over 10 hours of interviews with people who all have first-hand accounts of unexplainable events there, including the Pickman family of the infamous 1994 Sightings TV episodes about it, as well as the current owner of the house for the past 25 years, retired law enforcement officer Les Smith. We've personally investigated the property ourselves, and during that decidedly brief and, by our admission, amateur investigation, we captured startling evidence of something we cannot explain, something that shook my co-host and friend Scott to his core, causing him to leave the house the moment he was exposed to it, refusing to go back inside to this day. We've submitted that evidence for professional scientific analysis by a national leader in his field, and what he has to say about it will leave you shocked. This evidence has rattled everyone who's borne witness to it, and tonight, we aim to rattle you. This is part one of our series on the Sally House. Happy Halloween from Astonishing Legends. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. There are many truths of which the full meaning cannot be realized until personal experience has brought it home. John Stuart Mill. Welcome to part one of our 2018 Halloween special series on the Sally House. Man, this uh, particular series has been a long time coming. Well, you know, considering that it's rooted in things that happened to us at the end of July, yes. We're not going to do a whole lot of housekeeping here tonight because this show is already supersized, but we wanted to explain to you how this story is going to progress so you can keep up easier. We collected a ton of material for this topic, and we're going to parse it out as follows. Yeah, this is a pretty standard structure for us, but the difference is there's just more of everything. So more history, more eyewitness accounts, more, more, and even more. Yeah, so what's going to happen is tonight you will hear about the history of the town of Atchison, Kansas, and specifically the history of 508 North 2nd Street, where the Sally House stands. We'll cover the occupants of the house from when it was built to the present day. This is important information because it may inform you as to what is going on there. Yes, we're going to speak with the family that bore the brunt of the most powerful haunting that happened there in the early 1990s. And then we're going to hear from the current landlord and owner who's owned it since then, actually, as well as Atchison's director of tourism who introduced us to it in the first place. By the end of tonight's show, you will be well and truly acquainted with the history of the Sally House through the Pikmin haunting and beyond. And then tonight's episode will be over. Then our story takes a strange and dark turn. We went to the Sally House back in July, and on that trip, something happened that it's safe to say has shifted Scott's entire perception of the paranormal, achieving one of the goals we'd both hoped for when we started this show. Well, that was his hope. The goal of personally having a significant paranormal experience. And Scott did. 
I should have been more careful what I wished for. Yes, you should have. Uh, the details <laughs> of the trip the Astonishing Legends team took to the house will be shared in part two of this series and will contain the evidence of what we got while we were there. That show will be a commercial-free bonus show, and it will be released on All Hallows' Eve, October 30th, 2018. You ready? Yeah, for this part, yeah, this part is easy. Part two is going to be a little more difficult for me. Well, all right then. Let's get down to it. Chapter One, The Legend of Sally. All right, the first thing that I think we should talk about is what we had in, in the cold open, the story of Sally, the little girl Sally. There's all kinds of information about that. We're going to cover that through the course of this series. But I think it's safe to say, even in Atchison, a lot of people feel like that story has several apocryphal elements to it, that it's, well, it's sort of wound up becoming the legend, but we're not sure, and they seem to not be sure how much that's rooted in the reality. There does seem to be a spirit in the house named Sally. A lot of people have said that. There's psychics there who have thought there was a little girl there. There's eyewitness accounts. So we're not saying that there's not a Sally in the house or something, at least pretending to be Sally. Well, we don't know. Here, we don't a, know. But here, the, the whole yeah. like original story of the appendicitis and dying on the table, there's no hard proof of that anywhere. Not of that incident, really. But what's interesting is that, and we can debate this later uh, towards the end of the series, is that we could start with at least this core legend. Yes. Uh, the eponymous Sally here, for which the house is named, and it's become really famous. It's not known for anything else. It's not the, oh, the 508 North 2nd Street house. It's known as the Sally house. Yes. And you think that that's built around some kind of local legend and lore, but there are tie-ins that make you wonder if maybe that is the true story of the house or at least of that night, as we read it in the beginning. So those elements are the ones that are generally agreed upon as being the origin story. Kind of like, you know, always makes me think of uh, the Jersey Devil. Yeah. And there's, but there's two main ones with a lot of variations here and there. Again, we've talked about this before, uh, Mother Lead story. And, uh, yes. you know, there's all kinds of variations, but two main ones. Here, there's really no variation because it's not that supernatural. It's one night where... Unfortunately, this little girl had some kind of disorder that needed to be operated on at the doctor's house, and it really was a doctor's house That's at that right. time. It was a doctor's as house. As been said. Charles C. Finney is a real man. C. C. Finney is a real man, a very interesting man, I might add. A jack of all trades. I mean, he was a, he was a doctor. <laughs> he was a mayor at one point. He had been a medical assistant. He apparently was an amazing figure skater. Yeah, well, the, you uh, know what? So that, that, that happens in small towns, especially around the turn of the century and earlier, is that a lot of people or one person has several different roles in a small town. You might be mayor and postmaster and have a livery stable or, you know, there's a lot of different roles each person could And could a fill. doctor on top of that. Yeah, he was a doctor. So, yeah. so that's a real person. And here's what's interesting is that at that time, connected to the story, as far as the facts, there are some little girls named Sally, but it's hard to connect them to the doctor per se, except that it's done later in a supernatural way or, yeah. or a spiritual way. Those are callbacks. And, and why does that happen? Is it because it's true or is something, some kind of consciousness, let's say, picking that up and furthering our imagination with this tale? and bolstering the tale because that's the name it's picked up on. And then it's kind of a cycle, you know. There is a component to this haunting that would suggest that you see what you want to see. 
in this house. It's very bizarre. It's amorphous what is happening there. Yeah, for the people that experience these personally, you can trust that something happened to you, but you may not be able to trust what that is or what the origin is or what did it to you and why. Yeah. Those things may never be known. And that's kind of what's known about this house is that you can't trust that. So it's an unreliable narrator, as we say, of the Sally story. But if you get scratched, you know that really happened. Let's go back to why we were there in the first place, which this is kind of interesting because the Sally house itself for us was a little bit of a detour. We actually had gone to Kansas, to Atchison, for the Amelia Earhart Festival because the Chasing Earhart team had invited us to speak on a panel there that they had put together regarding Amelia Earhart, which was amazing, and that's why we were in town. And the festival is a big deal. They close all the streets, all that kind of stuff. And it was our goal to try and visit the Sally House while we were there because it had this reputation as this amazing haunted house. But we were so overwhelmed, we actually kind of backburnered it when we got to town. We weren't sure if we were going to be able to pull it off because even though we were there and went in Rome and we should have done it because we were there, we were panicked about our presentation on the Amelia Earhart panel and trying to get everything organized for that. And then it turned out that the head of tourism for Atchison, Maria Miller, who we actually will be interviewing and you'll be hearing from tonight, she had called us out of the blue and said, hey, I want to take you over to this house. So she got us in there and we were able to take a tour of it. So that's how we wound up in there. And I think, frankly, I just want to say, you know, from the get go, I want to make it clear. I thought that something bad definitely happened in this house in the 90s, for sure, because I've seen the sightings episodes that feature the Pikmins, which we're going to be talking about and talking mm. to them. and. It's pretty amazing what they went through, but I figured it was probably over and done with, and the house was kind of a little bit of a tourist attraction at this point. Right. Well, we didn't know a whole lot about that angle. I'd heard of the name of the house, and I'd heard the story. What's funny is that uh, I I hadn't seen it since it aired in in the early 90s, 94, I think, 93, 94. The first episode on the Sally House aired on 9-11-94, September 11th, mm-hmm. 1994. Right, right, yeah. before that meant anything. Yeah. You know, I used to watch that show. I've mentioned sightings before. Of course, it's part of the top three, of course. You got In Search Of, you got Unsolved Mysteries, and sightings was very well done, too, I thought. Yes, it was. When I saw this again on YouTube, it's like, I've seen this, but I saw it a long time ago. It came back to you. It came back to me. Certain scenes were very iconic, and uh, if you had ever seen it and you watch it on YouTube, we'll have links to it. And if you do watch it, uh, some things rang true. It's like, I remember this story. So the story was vaguely familiar to me, but I did not really put that together. But as we've come to know, I mean, I knew it more from the Amelia Earhart angle, of course, Atchison, Kansas. Aside from its warm and friendly residence, is primarily known nowadays for two things. The first thing that was familiar to us and heartwarming, it's the birthplace of Amelia Earhart. And she was born there on July 24th, 1897. So what's an interesting side note is uh, she would have been around eight years old when this possible Sally died. And that was her grandparents' house, by the way. Yeah. Her her parents uh, did not live in town, but she was born in that house there. Yeah, that's kind of fascinating. She may have been around in the genesis of the story. And I wonder what the town was like then when she was a little girl. Every little town has its ghosts, as well as the big towns do, and the major cities. Well, all there, over. there are people will tell you that the house that she was born in, her grandparents' house, is also haunted. And it's oh, yeah, right yeah, yeah. up the street, by the way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yes, it is. That's that's true. And and we've talked to one gentleman, became a, a friend of ours there, Alex, and he had his own story of uh, staying there overnight, not to do any investigation, just I think he was 
helping out with the house. Yeah. And then the he heard something and... coming up the stairs, walking. And it's not just the house cooling. Yeah. So anyway, that's one thing it's known for. More generally, I think, and uh, and embraced. The second, though, cannot be overlooked. And that is, it's also known for being the most haunted town in Kansas. And maybe the whole United States. And possibly one of the most haunted places in the world. That's quite a title. But... Well, I'm sold on it. <laughs> <laughs> for you, again, that's all personal experience. Yeah. For you, it was. Yeah. I don't think you've experienced that or anything like that anywhere else. Absolutely not. Okay. So for you, so far, it is the most haunted place ever. Yeah, yeah. for me. That's what I'm in saying. In my little tiny sphere of experience. Exactly. So I think it's important, though, when you have that title to understand. I was going to do the macro and then go to the micro here. Take a step back, as you say, that 10,000-foot view, and take a look, an overview of the history of this town, and why is it called that? Is there something going on there? And then we're going to focus, we're going to drill down to this specific address, 508 North 2nd Street, and see why that house in particular in this town, which is one of the haunted, most haunted in Kansas, what is going on there? Here's a few facts about the founding and the early history of Atchison, Kansas. The city of Atchison, Kansas, was founded in 1854 and was named in honor of Missouri Democratic Senator David Rice Atchison. Once the Kansas Territory was open for settlement, Senator Atchison convinced some of his friends to form a city in the area he'd selected. Now, Atchison had an interest in it not only as an investment, but also to help ensure that the new territory's population was pro-slavery and also promoting the political idea of popular sovereignty to maintain that. The city of Atchison was incorporated on August 30th, 1855, and by the fall of 1857, large parcels of land were being surveyed and platted, and the town was rapidly growing in area. So the city was strongly pro-slavery up until about 1858, when anti-slavery forces took control, and on February 12th, 1858, the legislature issued a charter to the city of Atchison, and a month later, Republican Samuel C. Pomeroy was elected mayor. Now remember that name, he's going to play a part in the Sally House. So then actually, Atchison became kind of an industrial hub. It grew to become a significant commercial and trading hub because it sits along the western bank of the Missouri River, which also became the marker for the Kansas-Missouri state line. So in June of 1855, a few overland freighters were convinced to select Atchison as their outfitting point, and then merchants began establishing notable businesses there. So it's kind of growing as a commercial center. And by the late 1850s, the United States was planning to connect California to the eastern half of the country through a transcontinental railway. And the city of Atchison was lobbying heavily to become the eastern terminus with San Francisco becoming the western terminus. So in 1859, the Atchison and Topeka Railway was founded. In 1863, a federal land grant was given to the state of Kansas to help build this first transcontinental U.S. railway, which was then transferred to a reorganized Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railroad, the AT and SF. And despite it being in the name, the main rail line never actually served Santa Fe, New Mexico, because the train between those two locations was too difficult to pass straight through. Oh, have you ever seen the, uh, the famous film of Judy Garland called The Harvey Girls? I have not. <laughs> well, that famous railway is sung about by Judy Garland in the film. You may have shown me that YouTube video a while back, back when we were researching Amelia, I think, or right. when we were doing research on her for this panel that we were in town for, That's for the same right. thing. <laughs> I do remember watching that video and, and seeing that 
Well, there's a, there's a great, cool. uh, yeah, she has a great musical number, which uh, Maria Miller had actually sent to me because I was asking her about the town. Right. And it's like, that's oh, yeah. We got that's yeah. right. Maria sent it to us. That's I remember that exactly. Now. So it was kind of fun. It's a fun movie. But that rail line was featured prominently, of course, because it was an important junction yes. uh, for rail transport. So it had a little trouble getting to the prominence that the town had hoped. Because although Atchison tried hard to become a major railway hub, it was overshadowed by the better logistics of Kansas City and Omaha. And the lack of a single and sustained coordinated effort by the city's boosters helped in getting the town surpassed by more major industry. So it kind of lost out. But, you know, the reason for mentioning all this is to show that Atchison had a lot of activity and traffic in its day and a lot of commercial and some political struggle. And it really has an important place in U.S. history. Here's something else that's fascinating about Atchison. It is known for being the location of a well-respected Catholic liberal arts institution of higher learning, Benedictine College, which, of course, has a ton of its own <laughs> haunted history involving ghostly monks, poltergeist activity and legends and lore, and continues to produce accounts of paranormal encounters from the students and faculty who've been there. And oh, yeah, we were looking into that. We were possibly thinking of checking that out, too, while we were there. Yeah, <laughs> the school is a little less forthcoming about those stories. But one well, thing that we found yeah. while we were in town, because we were there for, I think, seven days for the Earhart Festival. Right. When we were in the restaurants, as we are wont to do, we tend to ask the locals what stories they've heard. And we yeah. talked to more than a few students at the school, graduates and current students. Mm -hmm. And they all had a story to tell about the monks and the cemetery and, and various hauntings and pretty interesting stuff. And we spent some time on the campus, which is beautiful. It's stunning. stunning oh, yeah. School. No, no. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a gorgeous campus. Very well respected. We actually had more than a few meals at Willie's and enjoyed that a lot. And, yes. Uh, great selection of beers and their own till vodka, which is made there in Atchison, I believe. And, yeah, a lot uh, of the staff there, <laughs> they were all students there, either yeah. former students or, or current students. So right. uh, there's a lot of neat stories, a lot of history in the town and the, and the colleges has been there a long time. Yeah. So as you start to ask people, and again, they're really friendly. Everyone was so nice to us. Yeah, I loved, I loved the town. Yeah, everybody's got a story. So you start to wonder, is this whole town haunted? And it's just fascinating because I've never been in one place, one location where it seems like every building has got a story. Yeah. And uh, they have their own resident spook there and the people know about it. And if you talk to enough people, like the Elks Lodge is haunted. Where we had our meet and greet. Every building there. Oh, well, the, along with the know. guys from Generation Y, we had a dual, right. a dual meet and greet there. It yeah. was a lot of fun. No, they took great care of us and, of course, told us their stories and were fascinated by that as well. But, uh, you know, then there are restored Victorian mansions, and that's another thing that Atchison is known for. It's just a tremendous amount of really nicely restored Victorian mansions, uh, like the McIntyre Villa. Yes. Uh, the Glick Mansion, which is very close to the Sally House, across the street, I think, a little Directly ways. across the street. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and that's a bed and breakfast, and the, it has the tuck you in. And uh, in the sense of trying to answer the question of why does this town have so many stories like that? And if you're wondering why the town of Atchison, Kansas, has such a reputation for being the most haunted town in Kansas, we've now come to believe it's best to go back as far as you can to the earliest histories of a place. And here in the United States... That usually means going back and taking a look at our Native American history. Now, to be clear, we're not saying that ancient Native American activity is the cause of Atchison's hauntings, just that we always think it's best to look at all of the history and all of the backstory that one can in order to get the whole story. So now we're going to take a look at the findings of a paper titled An Old Kansas Indian Town on the Missouri by George J. Remsburg, who is a member of the International Society of Archaeologists and a member of the National Geographic Society. 
Now, I couldn't find a date on this paper, but a date that Remsburg, the author, mentions in it would probably place this as being written a little after the turn of the 20th century. And I also found that interesting because that's also around the time of Sally. Yes. So it's contemporaneous. With, yeah. With the, and, uh, uh, and the time of Amelia Earhart being a little girl. Yes. So this is all kind of a very interesting time and place for America as well, coming into its own. And, uh, you know, after a lot of this town and this area was settled in the mid-19th century, Things are settling down, it's growing, and things are starting to happen. So what I found interesting about this paper, now keep in mind, it's not talking about ghosts per se. It's talking about the early Native American settlement of the Atchison region, except in this case, George Remsburg. He's making an argument or a case for the town of Donovan being the location of a major Native American settlement, an ancient one through accounts of the first explorers uh, coming in there. And again, he didn't really talk to the Native American folks there, the contemporary ones of his time so much as, you know, the white settlers coming in. So that's an important distinction in this paper, but they found a lot of evidence. So that's all he's claiming in this paper. Yeah. And I found it interesting, though, because of the findings of Donovan, which I believe at this time was a little under eight miles north of Atchison. And Atchison, as, as he says in the paper, Atchison was always believed to be the location of this very sizable, very notable, significant, ancient Native American settlement. But there's some interesting facts here. Yeah, with the early French explorers to the region where Kansas is today, mentioned in their reports, a larger main village of the Quans tribe of Native Americans on the southwest bank of the Missouri River. The Quans were the Kanza or Kanza Indians which is where the state of Kansas gets its name. Yeah, did you know that? I mean, I've heard that, I think, a long time ago. I didn't know yeah, that until right. we started working on yeah. this, honestly. And you, yeah, you learn these things along the way. Actually, you know what? You don't learn them. I'm pretty sure when <laughs> I was in junior high, which yeah. is probably what I might have learned about this, that nobody told me where the name Kansas came from. Right, so that's right. pretty fascinating. <laughs> in 1724, this large village was visited by French military explorer Captain Etienne Vaugard de Beaugemont military commander of the colony of Louisiana during his famous expedition to the Paducas, which I believe were a large tribe of Native Americans on the heads of the Kansas River. And also, by the way, I want to spell Kansas, K-O-N-Z-A-S, which is like Kansas. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I, I can see the similarities there. Yes, there's some similarities. <laughs> right, but as far as I could tell from uh, some of the older accounts, I only looked at a couple they were a tribe of Native American peoples that, this is the point, is that he's going to go greet them because of just trying to settle out a, a treaty. Because yeah. prior to that, there were alliances with the Spanish, some were allied with the French. I didn't include that in the notes here, but it's really quite a trip with hundreds of people. It's, it was kind of crazy. Yeah. This huge contingent of people marching on this big quest to go meet these people and kind of iron out a treaty so we could live in peace especially after the Spanish and French occupation. Right. So the exact location of this sizable and noted village hasn't quite been determined, although the ruins of an old Native American town have been noted by explorers for many years after de Bergemont. A professor Dunbar that the author of this paper, George Rimsberg, is mentioning, says that the actual site of this old Caw tribal village is Atchison, Kansas. Right. While most Kansas historians don't make any solid claims to this, just that the ancient village was near Atchison. So that's an important point, and uh, kind of the story we're exploring here and, and building up to is that, again, realize that this paper was written probably just after the turn of the century. Right. So 1905, probably 1910. Somebody could figure that out. I could not find a date on that, but you find dates that he's mentioned where he's actually talked to people like I talked to somebody in 1904 
Yeah. Yeah. So this wasn't written the, <laughs> probably in the 70s. Right. But the idea, though, is that whoever this Professor Dunbar is, and he's making a, a connection to other academics of the time, is that somewhere around Atchison, if not Atchison proper, but along those banks, it's a great location. There's a big bend in the river there where yeah. Atchison is. And if you go a little north where Donovan is, at least I found on the map, and that certainly could be changed from the olden days, mm -hmm. it's a great place to have a settlement. It slows down the river. You have a lot of access to it, a lot of uh, area, and uh, there's great plains, great agricultural uh, resources there. So that's all Remsburg is saying, is that from his research or whatever, he thinks it's more so Donovan, right? That's all his claim is with his papers, that there's a lot of evidence of a large settlement in and around the area, and it's more likely probably north of Atchison. But I think our case with this paper is that there is a lot of people living there for hundreds of years, centuries possibly, before white settlers came in, even in the early 18th century. The other thing that's interesting about it, and we found this out when we visited there, especially when you're driving from, you know, if you come into Kansas City and you drive from the airport, all along the way, you see all these signs for the Lewis and Clark Trail. And it's really fascinating because I guess that they believe, a lot of people believe and historians believe that Lewis and Clark may have crossed the river or at least visited Atchison. And one of Atchison's claims about this is that it was the first place in the American West to have celebrated Independence Day. Yeah, well, as the paper states, on July 4th, 1804, Lewis and Clark discovered a stream about 30 yards wide, which they named Independence in honor of the 4th. So there you go. Yeah, and I think they celebrated, actually, their fireworks were firing off their, their muzzle loaders. Yes. Into the air. It was kind of a big deal, and uh, still remembered in Atchison. Okay, so we made some interesting notes here about the rest of this paper that archaeologist George J. Remsburg had made, and he knows this area very well, and uh, especially around the turn of the century, and he talked to a lot of people. Again, his claim was that in this area, especially a little north of Atchison, there was a lot of evidence found. And a lot of I, relics, right? Oh, yeah. And we're talking, uh, you know, pottery shards, arrow points, flints, hafted stone tools, lots of evidence, uh, fire pit rings, and evidence of what he called wigwams. Again, I'm not sure if the terminology... Again, bear in mind, folks, this is the turn of the century. Things yes. were a little different back then, yeah. <laughs> even amongst academics. But I thought it was significant, though, because of just what was found there, and that this paints a picture and a possible debate, shall we say, of is this important, and does this give us some underpinnings of why Atchison is haunted? But he mentions a lot of notable people that he talks to of the day, like Judge W.H.H. H. Curtis of Troy, and he was one of the early settlers in Donovan, in response to inquiries, writes from his own observations, that uh, he was convinced that Donovan was a site of an important Indian village, because when he was a boy, he saw lots of Indian relics near Donovan. And he says, uh, in quote, I know many others who have found axes, arrows, spearheads, human bones, and what appear to be old burying grounds near both east and west of Donovan. And the founders of Donovan say that in the early days when they got there, there were large masses of charcoal and pottery and burnt substances. And he also says that the rock shelters and small caverns in the sides of the high bluffs about Donovan contained the bones of Indians. And along with those, pottery vessels and all sorts of artifacts. So there are a lot of different accounts, like one of... Uh, T.J. Ingalls, in, in May 27th of 1904, saying, I should think from the number of graves and stone relics found in and about Donovan that it was vastly populated at some time in the past. There are a lot of other quotes uh, by eyewitnesses taken by the author here of Indian burial mounds and graves 
that are numerous on the hills surrounding Donovan. And so there are a lot of accounts that I saw here of these limestone slabs that were used to cover the remains of Native Americans. They were in the ground, as it says here, in the ground in regular order or piled up irregularly to mark the last resting place of some Aboriginal denizen of Donovan. So what it seems is, is an idea, possibly, of what we talked about, I think, way back in Gobekli Tepe. Now we're, we're going to have to change our saying. It always goes back to Gobekli Tepe. And it kind of does, really. <laughs> Everything does. It kind of does. That the white settlers of European descent who came in and started clearing the land for cultivation were seeing these limestone slabs and a lot of these artifacts. And again, of the day, they weren't that careful with them and didn't really care. They're there to farm it. So they cleared it and they repurposed a lot of this limestone. Now, who's to say, again, if you weren't putting parts of it to make your barn or your house or just repurposing it because it's already cut out in slab form, but it used to cover the remains of native peoples. And here you are kind of disrespecting. And does that make a difference? Would it be the same as using tombstones to build your house out of? Is anything wrong with that? Is that good luck? <laughs> Is anything going to happen with that? I just thought it was interesting in that there were so many artifacts. And that's kind of the point also of this paper is that they are everywhere in this region. People are constantly finding stuff so much that they don't even keep up with it or collect it, really. It just ends up in piles or they clear it away or they repurpose it. And one example of that that he mentions is that on the farm of John Myers near the junction of Independence and Rock Creeks, uh, the writer, the author of the paper, assisted by J.B. Lofton, they explored, as they say, an Indian mound. And they say, quote, this mound was originally covered with stones, but most of them had been removed by Mr. Myers in cultivating the land. The contents of the mound consisted of human remains badly charred by fire. And it goes on to say, everything indicated that this was the remains of a scaffold or tree burial after which tumbling down had been swept by prairie fires and later gathered up and deposited without regularity in a stone sepulcher. Okay, so as we're finishing that kind of uh, discussion on this paper here, what we're seeing, though, is that there are bones and remains in various states buried in the earth under stone slabs from scaffoldings. Remains found in the caves and the bluffs that uh, are near Donovan and Atchison. Mm -hmm. uh, these massive limestone caves and this massive bluff, which is also another thing that Atchison is famous for. So why do we just tell you all about that? We're getting to a common trope. If you believe any of this at all, and you're one to think that disturbing ancient Native American burial sites brings bad mojo... Could it be that Atchison may have it in spades and that it might be one of the reasons or maybe the major reason Atchison is considered the most haunted town in Kansas and maybe the whole U.S.? We just think we presented some evidence where obviously a lot of disturbance has gone on. Maybe some defilement, some intentional, some unintentional, but definitely a lot of disturbance, let's say. And maybe a case where you're living over something you don't know about and it's having an effect. Or does it matter? because there are other points of view about this. What if this whole Native American haunting angle is off, exaggerated, or just plain wrong? Well, we asked an expert. Yeah, so that expert is Professor Sean M. Daly. He's got a, a PhD and an MA. He's a professor of anthropology at Johnson County Community College in Overland Park. He is also the director of the Center for American Indian Studies. He is the associate director of the American Indian Health Research and Education Alliance. And he had a he has a pretty well-educated background well, on 
as he says, the Indian thing <laughs> the Indian in his thing. email. What's, this is what's funny and delightful to us is that we're bringing him in much, much earlier than what he planned to in the show because his, his knowledge is so vast and his expertise in this field is so apropos to what we're talking about right now. Yeah, the other thing that's fascinating is that he's been going to the Sally House for quite a while, and he's conducted a bunch of investigations there. And as such, we have an interview with him, which we're going to be sharing with you in part two of this series. Mm. But right now, here's one of the things that's interesting. It's a little bit out of order. Towards the end of the interview, when I realized his area of expertise and his educational background, I asked him, hey, since you're an expert in Native American studies and you're a cultural anthropologist, would you consider being a future contributor to the show? And he said absolutely that he would do that. And then he, I he wound just didn't up, know how soon. Yeah, it was the next day. <laughs> yeah, I, right. So he wrote us an email because all the stuff that we were just talking about with the Native American burial grounds in the area, and it's something that we've brought up before in prior episodes. I wanted to present an interesting point of view on that mm -hmm. from Dr. Daly, or as he says, call him Sean. So I'm going to say from Sean. So when I asked him about all this, this is what he said. Okay, so the Indian thing. The Atchison area was most likely Kansa territory. Slightly to the northeast would have been Missouri Oto territory. To the south would have been Osage. Whether it was Atchison County or Donovan County, the area would have likely been Kansa. It is my understanding that there were two sizable Kansa villages in the area, one just outside Kansas City, that's how the city got its name, and one a little north of current-day Atchison. And then he says parenthetically, I just confirmed that with an Osage tribal member with whom I work. There would have likely been something there or in the area. So with that said, from a native settlement perspective, there is nothing special about Atchison. We actually did send him a link to the paper that we just referenced, but it was late in the day and he didn't have a chance to look at it. So I want to make it clear that he hasn't read it. And this is what he says about it here. I've not heard or read the paper you cite below. I will later when I get a chance. But for the most part, I generally don't pay too much attention to the writings of most historians now or in the past and archaeologists. It has been my experience that they don't care what living natives, peoples, the descendants of those they claim to study, have to say or think. They are more concerned with the previous writings of white academics and towing the lines of their disciplines. The fact that people still believe in and push the Bering Strait theory is a prime example of that. As for there being burial mounds there, it is possible, but it would likely be irrelevant. The Kanza are part of a larger linguistic and cultural family, the Dagiha, which includes the Kanza the Osage, the Omaha, the Quapaw, and the Ponca. According to their traditions, they trace their ancestries back to the Mississippian mound builders, specifically the Cahokians. Who yeah, we've we, we, that's right. Show. We've talked about them. Yeah. The Kanza, like their Dagahan family members, probably did use burial mounds, and since they did, burial cairns, soil and dirt. It is possible that some of the buildings in Atchison contained stones associated with burial mounds. However, there are literally Indian burial grounds all over the U.S., and the overwhelming vast majority of places associated with Indian burial grounds have no paranormal activity. Additionally, especially at the Sally House, the activity is intelligent, and you're going to be finding out about that. Most activity associated with rocks and materials from burial sites have been reported as residual activity, as in most often suggested by the stone tape theory. It's something we've referenced before. Mm -hmm. Overall, I think the native ground theory is dangerous for a couple of reasons. First, it can lead us to victim blaming, and second, it can lead to cultural appropriation. There's already this belief that if there is an Indian burial site in an area, it's going to be haunted. This is part of the American psyche. Most of this is the byproduct of the old Christian belief that these people, natives, 
were pagans and devil worshippers, and as such, when they die, they will stick around and haunt the good and proper white Christians. They are also sticking around to get back at the white people for stealing their land. This can also be tied to a degree of the New Age movement and the belief that Native peoples are spiritual peoples, when in reality, they're just people. Some spiritual, <laughs> yeah. some not. So there is a reductionist view here and oversimplification of who Native people are. Bundle this all together. When people have a haunting, it has to be somehow tied to Indians, i.e. victim blaming. However, since it is somehow tied to Indians, Indians themselves or Indian traditions must be used to alleviate the activity. So a native healer must be brought in to heal the land and appease the spirits. But finding one can be a bit of a challenge nowadays, especially if you are not tied to native cultures. So the next best thing is utilized. A non-native who claims to know native ways. It is usually a new ager who took a course in Sedona and who has a great grandmother who was a Cherokee princess. So they have that genetic connection or someone who watched Dances with Wolves or read Black Elk Speaks too many times. They break out their sage bundle and a turkey feather and they pray over the land. Now we are at cultural appropriation. This Indian land thing works great for non-natives, but can be very offensive and insulting to native peoples themselves. And not too long after this, Sean copied our email chain to a religious studies scholar named Ryan Geckner, who he refers to as a friend and a colleague, who also apparently has investigated the Sally House with Sean. And Ryan chimed in as well, and he said, I've got to echo much of what Sean mentioned about the dangers of linking paranormal activity to supposed American Indian burial grounds. It's totally wrapped up in this idea of Native peoples being, quote, super spiritual, and nearly always leads to cultural appropriation of indigenous religions by New Agers. Just as there were hundreds of culturally distinct indigenous communities in the Americas before the arrival of Europeans, there was and continues to be a wide array of burial practices across Native America, many of which don't include burial in any sense at all. Also, the idea that disturbing the dead results in some sort of vengeful spiritual attack is not inherently American Indian. Ideas about hauntings being the result of mistreatment of the dead are found in many cultures around the world. With that in mind, this idea is largely an extension of non-native fascination with and exoticization of indigenous spiritualities. Personally, I think the assumption that many hauntings in the United States are caused, at least in part, by vengeful native spirits is perpetuated by tropes found in some of the most popular horror films, the Amityville Horror and The Shining, just to name a couple of examples. There's even a lot of evidence for this idea of hauntings being associated with Native peoples as far back as the 18th century American literature, but that's a whole discussion in and of itself. Although this trope has largely fallen out of favor in Hollywood films, it can still be found in some more recent media, like the hugely popular show Supernatural. Hope this is helpful. Best, Ryan. I thought this was really fascinating. And oh, so you thought that this was worth reaching out to these guys? I did, and okay. I'm, I'm glad to have brought them in. I've been wanting to have a Native American scholar of some kind or somebody in, in that culture help us out with the show for quite some time now. And the first thing I wanted to say after reading this, and I, I haven't had a chance to respond really to uh, Dr. Daly or to uh, uh, Mr. Geckner, is... I am guilty of this. I could not be <laughs> more guilty. Up. No, I couldn't yeah. be more guilty. I have done this and not really understood the ramifications of it. Right. And I, it's one of my favorite things about our show is learning about a new perspective that I wasn't aware of and really taking it all into account. Mm. And the reason that I felt it was important to share this here in this particular series is because when it comes time to talk about our conclusions and look at what's going on in this house, I want to be able to look at it with a fair 
eye and understand all the possibilities of it because this comes back to me thinking that whatever is there is presenting itself in a way that is relative to the observer. Right. And I think that the observer can create the experience in that house. And what frightens me about that is the amount of power that the thing on the other side must have to conform to whatever it is that person thinks they're going to see. Right. Yeah. It's crazy to me. And so then I, we have to take away the idea because that's the whole thing. And I, I guess what I would say with these emails from these gentlemen is that the fascination with disturbing the dead or, or burial, for me, that's a case that runs across the board right. for all cultures, not just Native American culture. You, you don't mess with your dead, right. period. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think for me, the, to boil this all down, because the listeners had to listen to a lot of this and make sense of it, if you look at the United States in particular, that's our trope, because we had Native Americans here long before the European settlers. Well, all over the United States, it's all been disturbed. It's all been defiled in some way to make room for new lands and cultivation, and that's just part of it. And it doesn't mean that it's all haunted. What I would say in conjunction with this is that we don't really know. This is not an answer. This is not a concrete counterpoint to anything. It's just to recognize the fact that it's not always this case, that whenever there's a haunting like this whole town, which apparently is the most haunted in Kansas, it's not necessarily because it's a massive Native American burial ground that's been disturbed. Now, do I think that can be the case sometimes? Why not? In my approach, again, I'm not going against either of these two academics, which are light years ahead of my knowledge, just saying that, do we know what's really causing this stuff on the other side? We can put together some of the evidence, and that's certainly what they've done, and we can draw conclusions and make patterns. But especially with the Sally House, there's a lot of theories and ideas, as we will get to towards the end of the series, but nobody really knows. We've talked to on this few, side anyway. <laughs> we've talked to a few psychics. We've talked to mediums. Yeah. They have ideas. Some of them match up. We've talked to people who've been to the house a lot and have studied this, and they have their ideas. I just don't think, again, as we say on this show about skeptics and believers alike, nobody really knows. But there are things that seem to happen that we can make patterns of. And in this sense, this trope of the disturbed Native American grounds, it seems there are Native American grounds here. We can agree on that. And they have been disturbed. But does that have any effect on just how, quote unquote, haunted this whole town is and this house in particular? We don't really know. And I'm so glad we got to talk to them because these are great points and that it doesn't matter really. And it doesn't seem to make a difference anywhere else in the United States. And here, it may be looking at the wrong thing. And that's what I loved about these emails. What's that fresh minty smell? Did you just brush your teeth? <laughs> I did, with my Quip electric toothbrush, using Quip's own toothpaste with design input from dentists, so it only has the ingredients that best help keep your teeth their healthiest. I had to ask, because that's not the usual smell coming from your side of the table. <laughs> hey, look who's talking. <laughs> well, after our extra garlicky Putinesca lunch, I thought it was necessary. Well, that's very considerate. Thank you. Yeah, it wasn't for you. It, it was for me and this popper stopper. You carry your Quip in your computer bag? Uh, yeah, it'd be a little silly to carry one of those other bulky electric toothbrushes, but Quip is slim and ultra-portable, so you can take those gentle, sensitive sonic vibrations wherever you take your teeth. I also love taking Quip with me when I'm traveling, because you can flip the travel cover over and stick it to the hotel mirror to use as a holder 
keeping it off that dodgy hotel bathroom counter. Uh, yeah, I wish Luminol had never been invented. Dude. I, I do like that not only is the toothpaste formulated with advice from Dennis, but of course the Quip brush is too. So I know the toothbrush and how Quip advises me to use it is better on my teeth and gums. Because one thing I've noticed is that some electric toothbrushes are a little abrasive and combined with brushing too hard, well, that can irritate my gums. Yeah, I was uh, guilty of brushing too hard, uh, especially with a manual toothbrush. But that's why I love Quip, because altogether it's kind of a system that that's helping me take better care of my teeth and gums, which leads to better overall health. And I love Quip because they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals, and Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com legends right now, you get your first refill for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com legends. Hello everyone, I'm Daniel Sharp, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so before we get to the Pikmin interview, which is a good portion of this show, and we hear from people who aren't fond of interviews, but I really <laughs> like doing them because it's a firsthand information, and that's something that is very important to me. We can sit down and pontificate about anything, and we can research from a distance, and we do that, and we enjoy doing that sometimes. But sometimes when you can talk to people that were actually there, especially when it comes to folklore and legends, that is really where you get down to the meat of the matter. And one of my favorite sayings, don't tell me what I saw. Yeah. I was there. You it, weren't there. You weren't there, exactly. Exactly. Well, let's talk to the people that were there. Yeah, so we always do that, and that's what we are going to do tonight. But with regard to what the Pikmins experienced there, which is far and away probably the most famous part of what's ever happened at the Sally House and the most violent and unusual part, we wanted to talk a little bit about the timeline of the house itself. But before we dive into that, we have to tip our hats to quite a few people, actually, in terms of this research. The good news is that Atchison has been looking at this forever, and the people in Atchison have been researching it a long time time. And Forrest, I would say that we definitely want to thank the Atchison Chamber of Commerce yeah, for the information well, they provided us. It goes back to that idea that we've uh, talked about, I think, way back at the Queen Mary yeah, and uh, the state of Hawaii and other official branches and sources and organizations where they take this seriously. And this is a great case of that. Yeah. Where they know something's going on. And yes. so they've prepared for it. There's a great book that they put out uh, we're going to talk about and pull from here in a second. But yeah, there's several sources that we should acknowledge, and they have worked together, I think, in this town. And so one of them is an overview of the history, important facts, and backstory of the Sally House, which we'll be reading from on occasion here. And this overview is a compilation put together by the Chamber of Commerce for people who are visiting, also for incoming paranormal investigation teams. There's a pamphlet. Yes, which about what to do, yeah, when what not to, to do. It's awesome, yeah. There's a few sheets. There are certainly guidelines that the tour guides use. And because there are so many rumors out there and, and parts of the legend that are incorrect or based partly on incorrect information, some of it being true, that's you know the great uh, mishmash of, uh, of any legend. There's truth mixed with fiction and some exaggeration. That's why we think it's great to come back to these sources that the town itself is putting forward as mostly the truth, we could say. And this collection of evidence has been edited and collaborated on by trustworthy people which are associated with the Chamber of Commerce. So if you go take a tour of the Sally House, which I at least recommend, Scott will say at least go there once. 
<laughs> then yeah. decide after that. Yeah, yeah. This is some of the information you'll hear, and maybe even given out by Maria Miller herself, who is the director of tourism for Atchison. Yes. Yeah, she opens up the house for people to take tours and to do investigations. And well, yeah, so, so and she's yeah. the one that took us there, and you'll be hearing from her tonight on the show. Exactly. So there's a pamphlet that we, we talked about that's available to those taking a tour or teams conducting paranormal investigations. Yeah, it's a kind of a how-to guide, what to expect, what not to expect, behavior, how to act. And I know that sounds all kind of silly, but there are rules. Yeah. And they've collected them into this pamphlet. So that's pretty cool. If you decide you want to go there yourself and check this stuff out, there's a couple of places you can visit online. We're going to have all this in our show notes, like I just said. The website is visitatchison.com. So go to visitatchison.com to get more information. They have uh, all kinds of haunted events that take place in September and October, but there's a lot of great stuff to see any time of the year. And if you want to get more information, you can email tours, T-O-U-R-S, at atchisonkansas.net. That's tours at Atchison in kansas.net yeah and we're also going to be pulling some information from this really cool book put together by the atchison area chamber of commerce called haunted atchison the collected stories great compilation and if you don't think the town's all that haunted there's about 34 short stories in here yeah from all over town at different locations that are really fascinating everything from haunted buildings to vanishing hitchhiker type stories it's really cool and of course sally has her own chapter in here yeah, so that's a compilation of uh, just stories that have been collected over the years and compiled in this book. So that's a cool little thing to pick up. And the other thing that we want to point out is that a lot of information, a lot of really well-researched information came to us from Deborah Pickman's website. Tony and Deborah Pickman were the couple that lived in the Sally House that were featured in the sightings episodes from the 1990s. You're going to be hearing from them tonight. They're an amazing story. We had a really great interview with them. But Deborah's website is just unbelievable. It's just filled with information compiled over years and years. And uh, they're actually working on overhauling it next year. Right. And I believe we talked to their son, Taylor, who's I think is going to be in charge of that. Yeah. The family is sitting on this huge pile of evidence that's come from all these investigations, just hours and hours. I think he said he had 11 gigabytes of yeah. material. Yeah. And when you think about these haunted cases and these cases that we've talked about in the course of the show, and I'm sure that we'll talk about in the future, there's usually a few things to hear or see. There was a photo, there's a whatever... This house, every time you go in there, you come out with something. But uh, it's something uh, Dr. Sean Daly also said, is that he's got hours and hours of yeah, material. Yeah, every investigator he, has their own yeah, stuff. Yeah, and so there's so much stuff to go through that he's not even sure he'll ever get to it all. And, yeah. and as we've learned, when you comb through that, you have to go through it with a fine-tooth comb. You have to look at every frame. Listen uh, for, yeah, yeah, because it, it's so subtle a lot of times. A lot of times, but with this house, sometimes it hits you on the head like yeah, a hammer. That's true. Yeah. So that's why it's a great idea. If you love this kind of stuff, you love to go legend tripping, you want to go on a paranormal investigation. Yeah. It's a good place to start. Yeah. And really for me, what I love about Deborah's work and Tony's work on this as a family, really, is that they did not shirk away from this really traumatic experience. They dove in wanting to know what was going on, and they haven't stopped pursuing it since then. And all that collected work, that culmination of experiences and research is on the website. Yes, and of course, we would be remiss if we didn't also mention the Astonishing Research Corps. They just did an amazing amount of work here, digging up as much information as they could and uh, giving us new perspectives to think about when it came to looking at this case. Chapter 2 
the timeline. All right, so let's move on to the history and uh, the timeline of the Sally House, because that's important in understanding the big picture of what's going on there. We're doing this and we're going through it with a fair amount of detail for two reasons. One, the timeline is the story of the house as a thing. And as we get to the end of it, you might consider it a thing, much more so than just a house. The other part of this is the people, as we just mentioned. One without the other doesn't make the story. The house plus the people is the story. And so one is no less important than the other, really. It's a really symbiotic kind of scary, spooky relationship here. One might even say that they feed on each other. <laughs> you might. That Which has I been guess said. Which is what symbiosis is. Absolutely. Yeah. So before we get started, what we're going to talk about right now, of course, is the timeline of the property at two different addresses, you could say, two lots. One of them being 504 North 2nd Street and 508. 508 is the actual address of the Sally House. Right. 504 but, is right next door. Right next door. But those two properties, as you're going to see, are connected in a very strange way. Yes. By family, but also maybe something more. This timeline mostly was compiled by Deborah Pickman with the help of Jennifer Talbert on the website. And we just want to read this disclaimer because... Deborah's disclaimer. Yes, Deborah's disclaimer because she did the best job she could coming through all these historical records. But she does have a disclaimer on the webpage, and it goes as follows. The following information has been taken from numerous sources. Due to ambiguous records... Flooding in the town of Atchison resulting in the loss of records and other issues beyond our control, some of the information may be inaccurate. If any changes need to be made, please contact the admin for this site. Yeah, we're putting forth that same disclaimer. And wherever it's been possible, we've tried to cross-corroborate whatever data we could, check a couple of different sources, and line things up. Exactly. And uh, what we found, by the way, is that Deborah's information is highly accurate, in many cases, I would say, more than Wikipedia. Yeah. But if there's something that didn't make sense to us, we would cross-reference it in different places and try to back it up. And we did find some things that didn't make sense, not just from her website, but across the internet in general. And we tried to suss out the reality of it. And if we couldn't, then, well, then we're just not going to talk about it. <laughs> this is the center that line fact. through all that. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Through all the information as we find is the media. The we good, do that the good for balance. every episode. So we just told you a brief history of the town of Atchison. It starts not long after that, this story of the house and the people that occupy it. So we're going to go back to April 17th, 1857. And as we told you before, that's when parcels of land, lots, are being platted and mapped out and here, we're specifically talking about lots 9 and 10, and they were sold by the Atchison Town County to Samuel C. and Lucy Pomeroy. Now remember, this is only three years after the town was founded, I believe. Samuel was a prominent early member of the town. He was involved in the paper, uh, The Squatter Sovereign, and it was a paper that started off with strong pro-slavery sentiments, first issued on February 3rd, 1855. And Samuel Pomeroy was a very prominent town father starting off. So these two plots of land touched by one of the major figures in town here from the very beginning. And so what you'll see after this is a natural course of things being sold, changing hands. Uh, April 5th, 1859, they sold lot nine to Thaddeus and Theodore Hyatt of New York. Less than a month later, they give power of attorney to handle the property to Millis Gaylord and Samuel Pomeroy. So it's kind of going back as far as like who has control of this land. But really, here's the first prominent date, 1866. Michael C., or as he's known, M.C. Finney, acquired the property of lots 9 and 10 
where the 504 and 508 North 2nd Street houses would be built. Just to make it clear here, uh, Deborah Pickman has on her website an old uh, fire map that shows how the street's laid out. Of course, you can go, if you want to just go to Google Maps, you can do that too. But 2nd Street runs pretty much north, due north and south. And so 508, the Sally House, if you're facing the Sally House, then 504 is on the right of it, just south of it, a little closer to uh, Main Street downtown. What this outline will show, there's gonna, I know there's going to be a lot of dates and there's going to be a lot of names, but there's really two that are important. Two families tell the story of the haunting of this house. And in the olden days, it would have been the Finney family. Mm-hmm. And in the 90s, it would be the Pickmans. So between the years of 1867 and 1871, work on the house was done. Work that would eventually become the house at 508 North 2nd Street, the one that would later be known as the Sally House. And according to Agnes Finney's obituary, she's one of the daughters of M.C., Michael C. Finney. Her father is the one that built that house. That's a concrete fact. That's one where it's written down as he is the original builder of the house. Because yes. people do wonder that. Who really was the first one to build the house? They believe it was this patriarch, as we said in the cold open, who came from Ireland. Yes. And as we said, this story centers around two families. So that's why the Finneys are going to be very important as we talk about the history of this house. And according to the website, thesallyhouse.com, that's the one that's run by Deborah Pickman. Yeah, that's Deborah's website that we were, we, it's funny, we did all the attribution for her earlier and we didn't mention the website. TheSallyHouse.com, that's her website that she maintains that has a lot of this historical information, information that the Chamber of Commerce uses as well. Right, and Sally is spelled S-A-L-L-I-E. So yes. TheSallyHouse.com is where you're going to find a lot of this stuff. Well, according to her, the Finneys lived in the house and owned the property longer than any other family. So that's also why they're important. They've got the most energy there, the biggest footprint on that place. The house was continuously owned by a member of the Finney family until 1939. Right. So that's from 1866 when the lot was purchased and M.C. Finney wound up building on it over the next few years. From 1866 until 1939, it was in the Finney family, which is uh, pretty good. It's good, bordering on 70 years. We're not really sure about the early history. Some say as the house was being built, the family lived in the basement or the basement quarters. That's been debated. So then we go to the date of 1872, September 27th, 1872, and Michael, or M.C. Finney, the patriarch of the Finney family from Ireland, dies in the house at 10 p.m., now, this may be the first of several deaths to take place in this house. And remember the initials MC, because you're going to hear about them later on in a very creepy way. Now, survived by MC Finney at the time are his wife, two sons, a daughter, and a son that was on the way, unfortunately. So he is survived by several children and his wife. Yeah, and just to be clear, in the big picture here, they had five children, but two sons who died before they reached the age of two. Now, in 1874, Charles James Catherine's the father of Catherine, or as she was known, Kate Finney, the wife of M.C. Finney. He would be the father-in-law of M.C. He died on July 14th, 1874. Now, the notes here say he lived with Kate and her family at the time of his death. So did the father-in-law also die in the house? Yeah, I, we I don't sure. know that. We couldn't find anything that indicated that. But just to go back to the big picture here, his father-in-law died just two years after he died. Right. So right. Uh, it's a rough time for Kate because she becomes a widow and then two years later her dad dies. Yeah, times are rough. So already the chain of death is happening here, which is also part of life. Yeah, this is just a natural, <laughs> natural not, thing. Nothing spooky yet. Nothing spooky yet. As we point out these things in, in an effort for us and you, the listener, to answer the question, why is this place so haunted? 
these are some of the common things that people look for. Lots right. of death in a single place, misery, something going on with the ground, whatever it is. So to make matters even more unpleasant for Kate, her son that was born after MC died and also MC's son, so this child came along after he had passed away, unfortunately, he only lived a little bit over a year. He died on September 29th of 1874. He was born in May of 1873, essentially eight months after MC passed away. That's when he was born. But he's one of the two that we mentioned that uh, didn't survive yeah. uh, to two years old. And we're not sure where he died, but probably in the house? I don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We can, yeah, yeah, that might be a leap. Well, in 1879, another property comes into view here, 504 North 2nd Street, which was built by James K. Finney. Right. So James is... MC's oldest son. He builds the house next door. This is on the right. If you're facing the house, this house is on the right. It is still standing. It's a different kind of house. The Sally house is brick. This house is uh, clapboard. It is a little bit smaller. It has folks living in it now. So about two years later, after he built it, James actually deeded it over to his mother, Catherine, or Kate, who we've been talking about. And he moved to St. Louis. He was apparently a really good salesman. So he moved to St. Louis in Missouri to work in hardware and plumbing supplies. Yeah, he was very successful there. Right. And then just a year later, in October 23rd, 1882, Kate deeds it over to a Mrs. Catherine Bays. And uh, we don't have a lot of information on her, but it's changing hands again. But still relatively in the family. Yeah. That's the idea, is that yeah. this is being held on to by the Finney family. Right. And, and this yeah. is 504, not Sally. This is next door to 508, which is Sally. Right. These two addresses, these two houses, these two plots of land, are in a lot of ways connected, not just adjacent in physical space, but perhaps spiritually in a way, if you believe in that sort of thing. Yes. That there's, because it's within the family that there's a lot of back and forth, kind of like Pontifrac. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not just the one address there. The place next door gets its own spillover. So at this point here, we're going to tell you a little bit about Charles, as he was known, C.C. Finney the second oldest and middle son of M.C. Finney, because he may very well be the doctor from the original Sally legend you heard at the beginning of the show. And as Scott and I were talking earlier, it's like with Resurrection Mary. This is how we make sense of it. We have to find a person from the past. And actually, a lot of researchers will try and do that too in a haunting situation. Where's the anchor? Where was the real person? Well, with Resurrection Mary, as we found, there may not be a real Mary. Mary might be a spiritual concept that shows up, and that part's real. But a singular Mary, whose ghost it is, that may not be the case. And here, it may be the same thing. And the further we get into these kinds of investigations, the more I sort of lean towards wondering if it's the tail wagging the dog sometimes with this stuff. Yeah. It's becoming what you're seeking instead of being something that you're finite that you're trying to find. It shows you what you want to see or what you think you should be seeing. Is that what you're saying? In yeah, a way? exactly. Yeah, right. And that's a long time thing, I think, with paranormal investigations. Well, who lived here? Who lived... Right. I'm not convinced anymore that it's necessarily always related. Well, that's what's interesting about this case in particular, because you end up not really knowing. But there are some names and images, visages, vis visage, I, I don't know what the plural is, of this little girl. Yes. Named Sally. And as it goes along here, that's what we're trying to find. Is there a real Sally at the beginning to answer this question? So that's why we're going to look at some interesting notes about Dr. Charles C.C. C. Finney and how he got started and what his role is in the story. Well, in 1882, he became a bookkeeper for Dr. Dan Holland and then later his office assistant. And it was Dr. Holland who suggested to Charles that he study medicine. 
That's how we got into it. And by the way, Dr. Holland worked for the railroad, as so many people did in Atchison. The railroad was the thing at the time. And yes. that was obviously a good gig to have. So as we look at Dr. Charles Finney and try and paint a picture here of what kind of a personality he was, yes, he was well-known in town at the time. There's not a lot about Charles Finney. There's not a biography we can take a look at. He's just one of the more prominent people in town, but he's also a private citizen. There's only a few times where he kind of pops up on the radar here. And so there's a few interesting things that pop up on the public record here. And one that was kind of really interesting, well, he was known as Charlie Finney back in the day because he does pop up in the newspapers a little bit. But apparently he was a very talented, competitive figure skater, as was mentioned in his obituary. He was known, like, I guess in town, like, this guy's really good. And on December 27th, 1883, Charlie Finney, in quotes here, and Miss Florence Gurrier won a gold medal for best couple skaters. According to his obituary, it stated that he often dressed as a female skater and performed under the name Miss Colby of Baltimore and was so convincing at it and graceful that not many people knew it was Charlie. It may be the case that he was so good, actually, though, that he was winning competitions as a woman, and this was being seen as unfair to the female skaters. I thought it was a funny blip in the paper here. This may have something to do with Charles being barred from a skating competition that was advertised in the local paper circa 1885 that announces, quote, a prize of $5 in gold to the best gentleman skater in Atchison on New Year's night at the Palace Rink, open to all gentlemen skaters except C.C. Finney. Yeah, <laughs> it's like they everyone, excluded him. Yeah. So obviously either he fell out of favor or he was a ringer. Yeah, he's he just, just so good. Yeah, he's good. It's like, yeah, we don't we want to make it fair to everybody. <laughs> so please stay out of it. Right. So here's another interesting story that comes up about him. And again, the reason we're sharing so much detail on him is because if the original legend, which Deborah Pickman will tell you she's already disproved, but if it's to be believed about the doctor and Sally and the appendicitis, yeah. this is theoretically the doctor. This is CC Finney that was in the Sally yeah. house that operated on the little girl who supposedly came in near death. And one thing I want to point out here as we do paint this picture about his personality and what he was like from the things that we can kind of glean, again, his obituary and uh, newspaper articles at the time, is that he was a serious doctor. He was not a quack, as far as we can tell. But he was also a little bit of a character. He was like an interesting person. Yeah, he wasn't a flatline, zero personality kind of guy. He had some personality to him. And here's something that's interesting. On October 27th of 1887, Charles Finney and a man named W.S. Anderson got into a fight when Anderson accused Finney of stealing his sister-in-law's purse from a dentist's office. Now, at the time the pocketbook went missing, only Charles and another unknown man were in the office, but neither one was accused in the moment. Later on, Anderson went back to the dentist's office and accused Finney, who apparently was not there at the time. When Finney heard about the accusation, he went to Anderson's store, he was a storekeeper, and demanded he retract the accusation. They argued, got in a fight, and Finney apparently struck Anderson over the head with a heavy cane. Yes, repeatedly. Repeatedly. <laughs> now, Anderson's father came out and pulled out a gun to stop the fight. But Anderson didn't have Finney arrested or press charges because he was afraid that his dad was going to get arrested for pulling a pistol. But the next day, both Finney and Anderson were arrested for disturbing the peace and fined 
$10. So there you go. A little bit of a temper. Doesn't mind getting into a scuffle with a heavy cane. So that, that's super fascinating. Six years later, he got his MD from Beaumont Hospital Medical College in St. Louis. And then when he came back to Atchison, he established a medical practice in town by opening his doctor's office in the Martin Building at 5th and Commercial Streets. Now, Charles Finney's practice lasted a long time, and during it, he was medical associates with a Dr. William Bogle and Dr. Virgil Morrison, and for a few years before his retirement, his own son. One more notable thing about him in town, as we'll get to here in the timeline, but right now, we're at 1899, and things get a little sad in regards to the Sally House and the house next door at 504. On June 26th, 1899, there's a deed number 129 that has the lot and the house that James Finney built next door to the Sally House deeded to Joanna Barnes. Now, Joanna was a single woman, and she was a recently divorced mother of three with another child on the way. Kind of a struggling single mom here. But the mortgage dated the same day for $130 held by Catherine Bays, who we mentioned earlier. Right. Okay. Well, before moving into 504 North 2nd, again, the house next door to the Sally House. On the right side. Yeah. Joanna had been institutionalized in the state hospital in Topeka, Kansas for mental instability. Joanna was taken to court, and after hearing the testimony of her neighbors that she was, quote, violently insane, unquote, and got into fistfights, Judge Skava ordered her institutionalized. And on July 13, 1899, Joanna gave birth to a son, Frank Wright Barnes. On February 18, 1900, James K. Finney, who built the house next door to the Sally House, 504, yes, he dies at 10 p.m. at the Evergreen Hospital in Leavenworth, Kansas. Don't know if this means anything, but his father also died in the Sally House at 10 p.m. Yeah, not the same day, but they both no. passed away at 10 p.m. On November 9th, 1904, Charles C. Finney marries Louise Zebold, and in 1905, they move into the house they built on the other side of the Sally House. Right. Now, just to be clear, this house is north of the Sally House. This is not the one that James K. Finney built on the right side, if you're facing it. It's a house on the left side that is a red brick house that's still there. It's actually on the market right now. Right. For 126000 if anybody's looking for a fairly good-sized house right across from the Glick Mansion in Atchison, Kansas, but also right next door to the Sally House. Exactly. Yeah. So in 1906, April 18th, 1906, the deed, number 142, from Joanna Barnes goes back to Agnes M. Finney for $300 at the time. Johanna and her children moved to Kansas City, Missouri. That house, again, the one to the right of the Sally House, is now coming back to the Finney family. So it left the Finney family for two people. It was uh, Bay's. And then it went to uh, Joanna, and now it's coming back to Agnes. Right. Joanna remarries her former husband, Frank Barnes Sr. But in September of that same year, it seems Johanna had attempted suicide by turning on the gas in a downstairs room of her Kansas City house and by laying down on a cot with her son, Frank Wright Barnes Jr. Now, she survives, but her son Frank dies of asphyxiation. Yeah, the gas got to him. That was September 24th, 1906. Again, now down in Kansas City, not in Atchison. So, right, right. But it's, it's so sad because she, uh, I guess she had planned to commit suicide and take him with her, but he was the only one that went. Right. She was very troubled, but as you might wonder later on, does that house have any effect on that or amplification for people who already are suffering some problems? I know that the sightings crew tested the Sally house. Now, That's just right, keep in yeah. mind that Joanna lived next door. 
at 504 and the Sally House is at 508. But the Sally House has been tested, just so everyone knows, yeah. for both radon and carbon monoxide and none was found or not at dangerous levels anyway. So nothing it, there that should influence your perception if you're in the house. Right. So if you're wondering that, you know, a gas leak, something like that, it wasn't that. Yeah. Maybe something that was undetectable by the meters that the guy had at the time. Right. So on February 17th, 1907, Charles C. Finney, remember him, C.C. Finney, the fantastic figure skater, he and his wife, Louise, have a son, Charles H. Finney. Yes, who also grew up to become a doctor, right? I think so. I think yeah, I'm pretty right. sure they were both doctors, because I know that MC was not a doctor, right, so I, right. I'm pretty sure those two were doctors. So. No, and again, the medical thing with the family comes up again as a psychic impression yes. later on, so that was interesting. So just six years later, C.C. Finney, our doctor, figure skater, and father, is actually elected the mayor of Atchison. So I mean, clearly he had some popularity in town. Right, right. But just three years after that, in 1916, he was forced to step down and what they'll tell you, or what the Chamber of Commerce had told us anyway, was that he was forced to step down after a plea deal from the state's attorney due to a scandal that evolved around selling alcohol at the local Eagles Lodge. And I guess the police chief was caught up in this as well. And uh, that ended his uh, mayorship. Is that a word, mayorship? Uh, it is now. So that's pretty interesting. And that same year, Agnes Finney's husband, William True, has a stroke. And on May 4th, 1918, at 7 a.m., after spending the last three days unconscious, William A. True dies at 508 North 2nd Street inside the Sally House. Just to remind everybody, Agnes was M.C. Finney's second child and daughter. Just two years after that, our original matriarch, Kate Finney, Catherine Finney, who was M.C. Finney's widow, died at 504 North 2nd Street in the house to the right of the Sally House. That was the house that James Finney built and then later deeded to her. She passed away from gangrene and septicemia, which is a horrible, horrible way to go. Yeah, Charles C.C. Finney tried yeah. to treat her. When it gets too bad, you, there's not much you can do. You just can't stop it. Yeah, plus this is just after the turn of the century. Now that Agnes is a widow, she's decided that she's going to take in boarders at 508, which is the Sally House. So she's got boarders coming in and out of the house trying to earn a little bit of income and support herself. And this is a fascinating thing to me because taking in borders, now you're kind of into a hotel situation. You've got transient type folks coming and going, you know, who knows, working down by the river or whatever. <laughs> and I, I know about this because yeah. my great grandparents had a huge house in Raleigh in right. an area of downtown called Boylan Heights in Raleigh. Beautiful house that they were in for decades. And they used to have it as a boarding house as well. And even when I knew them, even when I was in college, they had boarders in there. One was a truck driver. There was another guy who lived under the porch named Fred. Okay. Uh, I was a big fan of his. He <laughs> Don't actually, disparage these people. No, no, no. Looking. He and I were good friends, yeah. uh, but he died under there, you know? Oh. And yeah. And it took him a while to, when he didn't come out. They went, Oh, and that's, uh, that's kind of bizarre. The but, point I think you're trying to make here with the Sally House in particular is that there's a lot of traffic. A lot of human traffic is now coming in and out. Yeah. A lot of different souls staying there for brief periods of time. And the other thing we'll point out is that coming after this, people don't seem to stay very long now. Yeah. But in 1926, Agnes Finney True still calls 508 North 2nd Street her home. She's there in 1928. But 11 years after that, 1939, Agnes died November 28th at midnight in the house, and she'd been ill for the last three years. In a wrap-up of the Finney family, 
up until 1939, since the beginning, a member of the Finney family continuously lives in the Sally house. So that's 70 years of continuity there. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. So then uh, another person moves in, I guess a tenant moves in in 1941. And then in 1947, C.C. Finney, again, coming back into the picture, passes away March 14th, 1947, in Topeka. His son, Charles H. Finney, and his wife, Mildred, live at the Sally house until they decide to move. So again, with the death of Charles C. Finney, C. C. Finney, he is thought to have been the doctor in the story, in the yes. original story, just to recap that. And he had a long life, longer than most yeah. of his family. He yeah. lived to be 82. What's interesting, though, is I, I believe he was wearing glasses in his advanced years, and he is believed to show up in some ghost photos yeah. around town or in some of the buildings that are close by there. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it is pretty interesting. He kind of stuck around. <laughs> now, here's something that's interesting. December of 1948, Dick Mize and his family moved into 508 North 2nd Street, the Sally House. They live in the house for just a short time. But here's an interesting fact. One of their children is named Sarah Sally Margaret Mize. So her nickname was Sally. Which is also spelled with an I-E, although I don't know how we know how a spirit would spell its name. If it didn't write well, it down for you. Ouija board. Yeah, Ouija yeah. board. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. That's a good <laughs> I'm not getting one out to find out. But, but this and but here's the spelled. thing about Sally Mize. She's still alive. At least I'm pretty sure that Maria Miller told us when she gave us a tour of the house that she was fairly certain that Sally was still alive. Yeah. Very hard to be a ghost when you're still walking the earth. Well, but <laughs> as you said earlier, something keying off of the life energy of the people here and molding it to their will playing with our minds with some of these names, because as we progress in the story, the name keeps coming up, but we can't nail this down, although there are some strong impressions, and psychic impressions for that matter. So after this, in the 1950s and later 50s here, a few people move in, uh, Roscoe Cook and his wife, but nobody really stays for very long. So now you're starting to see a pattern of, let me put it this way, if people see a bunch of weird stuff, are they automatically going to report it? Or do they just like, we're out of here. Yeah. Goodbye. Well, especially when you're a renter, which it seems like most of the time at the, in this yeah, period. Yeah, that happens anyway. I mean, here, that, yeah. look, that happens anyway. It happens here in LA. People don't stay very long in rental places. And the majority, I would guess, do not experience paranormal activity. But this house is special. Between 1958 and 1990, there's a woman who actually lives here for quite a long stretch. Ethel Anderson, and she lives in the Sally house up through 1990. Now, she's the ex-wife of Dr. W.L. Anderson. I wonder if he's any relation. That's just me speculating about the guy that got in a fight with C.C. W.S. Anderson. <laughs> all those it years It does back. seem like they might be related. Maybe. And by the way, you didn't point out when she moved in there, that was 58. So from 58 yes. to 90, she was there. Yeah. So quite a long stretch. Now, that's she- That's 32 years she lived there. That's right. Now, she never really reported any kind of paranormal activity as far as we know. But I guess there is a story of a mysterious fire happening in the nursery and no cause was ever found while she was there. Yeah, and that's going to come up again. Fires in the nursery uh, are going to come up again. And fires in general. <laughs> fires in You're general. You're going to be hearing about that tonight. Right. And speaking of spooky activity, now it starts to get a little strange and maybe a little supernatural here. Because in 1990 to about 92, before the Pickmans move in, at some point, Bobby and Colleen Humbard moved from 504 North 2nd Street to 508 North 2nd Street. The Sally House. 
They move one house over. One house over. So 504 is the one that James K. Finney had built right. and then deeded to his mom. Exactly. And so they were living over there next door, and then they moved into the Sally house, which is a little bit bigger. And by the way, because we've been there, it's a nicer house. It's a brick house. The one at 504 is a clapboard house. Well, what's significant about that is their daughter, Heather, played with an imaginary friend named Sally. Now, she later identified a drawing that Tony Pickman made as being her friend Sally. Yeah. So now it's starting to get a little spooky. Again, the history leading up to this, it had a little trouble. There's some death, but that's like every house. Nothing too special. But now you start to look back and like, what was going on in there? And now it starts to get a little supernatural. I was glad to see one of our favorite sponsors come back for another campaign, Warby Parker. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, I really like not only the look of Warby Parker's large line of frame styles, but the idea behind the company itself, which is to bring boutique quality prescription eyewear at an affordable price to the masses. And they do this by selling to the customer directly over the internet and in their stores. Also, for every pair you buy, Warby Parker distributes a pair to someone in need. Hey, I noticed that you only wear your Warby Parker frames now and not your other old glasses. Yeah, and that's because of their free home try-on program. Y you see, I have a terrible case of buyer's remorse. And when I bought those old pairs, I spent way too much time at the optometrist's office looking over a bunch of styles I didn't really like, then felt pressure just to get out of there. But I finally found a pair I think looked good on me. So if you don't remember, the way Warby Parker works is you pick out up to five frames to try out at home for up to five days so you can really live with them, wear them around, show your friends and loved ones to get their opinion on them. It's 100% free and 100% easy. The shipping is free, and when you've made your choice, just send back the samples with a prepaid return shipping label. There's no obligation to buy. Warby Parker also has something new since the last time we talked about them, a really great new app. So after you head to warbyparker.com legends and place your home try-on order, make sure to download the Warby Parker app from the iTunes App Store. They built this awesome home try-on companion feature, which allows you to quickly take photos wearing all the frames, stitch it into a video, and share it with friends and family to help you pick out a winner. And yeah, if you have an iPhone 10, the Warby Parker app has a brand new feature called Find Your Fit. Now, Find Your Fit uses iPhone 10's True Depth camera to map and measure key facial features. Using these measurements, Find Your Fit recommends approximately 12 Warby Parker frames that are likely the best fit for your face. The process is seamless and takes only a few seconds. And new glasses shouldn't cost as much as an iPhone. Warby Parker glasses start at just $95, including prescription lenses with anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. So head on over to warbyparker.com slash legends, that's W-A-R-B-Y, P-A-R-K-E-R dot com slash legends, all lowercase. Place your home try-on order, then be sure to download the Warby Parker app from the iTunes store to help you find your perfect pair of glasses today. Hello everyone, I'm Susie, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Chapter 3 The Pickmans we're getting close to the time that the Pikmins are going to move in and things are going to get really crazy and you're going to hear all about that from them here in a minute. But we wanted to talk a little bit about this last bit of activity that happened right before they got there. And one of the ways that we can look back on this is through the sightings TV show that we mentioned earlier in the show. 
because they came to the house while the Pickmans were there. So we're talking about an investigation that happened after the Humbert family lived there. Mm -hmm. But this is still pretty fascinating because sightings brought in this psychic who has now passed away, but he was very famous at the time. His name's Peter James. So Peter James comes into the house. He knows there's a family there. He knows that yes. Tony and Deborah and little baby Taylor are there. Right. There's a little boy there. He there's knows. a little boy there who is an infant at this point, actually. And we're actually going to be talking to him, believe it or not. We got in touch with him as well. And he has some interesting things to say about what happened after they moved out of the house. So the psychic from sightings, Peter James, comes up to the house and he's like, I know there's a little boy here, but who's the little girl up there in the window? Yeah, I see a little girl in the window looking at me. So he comes into the house and this is when we first get confirmation of a name. And this is what's fascinating about this because he's standing down at the bottom of the stairs and Forrest made reference to this earlier in the show, but he's standing down at the bottom of the stairs and he's up to he's like, he's like, shh, he's up there, Sally. He's like, her name is Sally. Yeah, he can see her. He can see her. Yeah, so he sees dead people. So <laughs> he does. And what's interesting about this is, and you have to remember, sightings didn't get there until the Pickmans moved in. But retrospectively, what they were able to determine was that when you go back to the Humbert family, the family that lived there before the Pickmans, and you talk about Heather, the little girl who had the imaginary friend named Sally, that little girl, Heather, was able to compare what she had seen with a drawing that Tony Pickman made of a ghost that he saw in the kitchen of a little girl. And Heather, that little girl said, no, that's who I saw. That's my friend, Sally. Right. It was the same little girl that Tony drew a year or two later when they moved into the house. Yes. So they were able to make that connection through the sighting show showing up. So that's something that's interesting. But then the next thing that happened was that Peter James took the sighting crew out to Oak Hill Cemetery, which is there in Atchison, and he took them to a particular plot that had a gravestone that was so worn and weathered they couldn't read what it said. Yeah, he felt a pull, as psychics do, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, he was drawn to this cemetery. And as he's walking amongst the tombstones, he starts to get an impression. A small voice is calling out to him, as it says in the show. And he is drawn to a specific plot, plot number one, fourth row west. And as he arrives at it, it's a very old, weather-worn headstone where you can't even read the lettering anymore. You don't know who it is, but he, he says, I think this is Sally's grave. He gets a sense of overwhelming grief and this small voice calling out to him, as it said. Well, the researchers and producers of the show Sightings checked that plot number. And even though the lettering was worn off, it was in the records as having been the resting place of a Sally Isabel Hall who died in 1905. Yes, more specifically, and you can look this up now on Find a Grave, which is, uh, we wind up using this site with every show we do, but I'm sure lots of you guys have visited it. At findagrave.com, if you go and look up Oak Hill Cemetery in Atchison, Kansas, you will find at plot number 1-4 West that there is a Sally Isabel Hall buried there. And this is what it says in the description on Find a Grave. Now, it doesn't have a picture of the headstone, which a lot of times Find a Grave has, but in this case, it does not. It says, Mrs. Sally Isabel Hall died and this is important, at 821 North 1st Street, mm -hmm. not 508 North 2nd Street, but 821 North 1st, which is nine-tenths of a mile away. If you go down 2nd Street past Benedictine College, that's, it's on the other side of there. So Miss Sally Isabel Hall died at 821 North 1st Street on the 23rd of last month. This must be taken from a record, the last month being February, of a complication of diseases, mm. burial at Oak Hill. So here's what we've got. We've got what, according to these records, is a little girl buried in that grave, an infant, it says, by the way. And Peter James had the impression that uh, she died of pneumonia 
This is, again, before checking any records. Yes, not having any idea. So he felt like he was seeing this little girl named Sally at the Sally house. And then he went to this plot and he found a grave that he couldn't even read that records bore out that a child named Sally was buried there. But here's the unusual thing about this. We have also heard from other sources in town that Sally Isabel Hall was actually an older African-American woman who had had, I guess, 14 children, 10 of whom had passed away, four survived, and she is buried at Oak Hill Cemetery. And in fact, she's even buried with one of her children that presumably Uh, passed away pretty close to when she did, on top of her. Yeah. Yeah. So there's some discrepancy there that we need to get to the bottom of. Yeah, exactly. Because as we've seen from the sallyhouse.com, which is Deborah's website, and this, I think, is her writing and research here, Her impression is that Sally Hall was an African-American woman born in 1871 and lived in an alley north of the Sally House, so just east of Second and Mount here. She's saying her age and ethnicity do not match, so there's a discrepancy here. And again, she gave birth to 14 children, four of which survived past birth. So yeah, why does this grave say infant? And by the way, the birth date on this particular grave, at least on Find a Grave, says unknown. The question is, is this Sally Hall the same Sally Isabel Hall from the gravestone that Peter James found. It does not sound like it. Yeah. But, well, what the show is claiming is that that's what Peter James found, what was calling out to him as being a little girl. And he did find a grave of of a little girl. Yeah. So, interesting. Another thing that's interesting about when the sightings crew was there was that another former resident, a woman named Kelly Elias, showed up. Uh, Her face was not obscured. And she was talking about how her two younger brothers lived in the nursery. Yeah, that was, was their bedroom. This was interesting because in the show, she comes up to the production at yeah. the house. And yeah. I think the Pickmans had already moved out by then. And she's like, hey, I saw that first episode. I recognize this place. Yes. I live there. Yeah, they were gone because I remember that the nursery was vacant when they went in there. with. Yeah. Them. And so she goes, I got a story. Right over here at this window, there was a fire all over the windowsill. And she goes, and we could never figure out how it started. That wall, by the way, doesn't even have an electrical outlet. It doesn't have electricity in it, and they never figured out how that fire started. So that's another story about a mysterious fire in the nursery. Yeah, as we said earlier, with Ethel Anderson having a similar mysterious fire story. Not much other activity that occurred during her tenure there at the house, Ethel's. Yes. So a similar phenomenon with two different renters, we believe. And I want to add right here, because we wound up cutting it from the Pikmin interview, the full interview, because it was it was a very long interview, and we, we cut it down to about an hour and 20 minutes. We did talk to them for over two hours. But one of the things that they mentioned, it was a cut. There is also evidence of a past fire in the attic of the house. Oh, uh-huh. That could have just been an electrical fire. But one of these things that seems to be recurring is these fires that happen and also apparently will either put themselves out or not spread. Mm -hmm. So there's something very weird there. Of all the things that are happening in that house, it's one of the scariest things. And you'll hear the Pikmins talk about why it's so scary. Well, it didn't burn the place down. Yeah, Yeah. but, but it's scary enough to see fires just spontaneously happening. Right. And at least in that nursery, not attached to a person, that seems to have happened a couple of times over the years. So this sighting's three episodes, the initial one, a follow-up, and then a kind of a bonus one, had a lot of great interviews with a lot of different uh, authorities and people who are audiologists and analyzed weird sounds there. And uh, again, the radon guy, yeah, the woman who analyzed EVPs, tape to tape. I love her rig there. (laughs) So, But one of them that I found kind of interesting, and you may not think that a conclusion or or thinking about something paranormal would come from a, a regular psychiatrist, but... 
there was somebody they interviewed named Carol Lieberman, and she is a psychiatrist, and she was kind of musing about like a global answer for this, like what's going on there? Because that's the ultimate question. And I thought she had a very interesting insight that pertains not only to the Pikmins that we're going to hear about, but also to Scott. You probably saw this when you watched the show, but I don't know if it, this rang with you like it did with me. And so a global explanation to include the whole family and the psychodynamics, as well as all these spiritual entities that may dwell in this house, she would say that it has a lot to do with anger directed at father figures or abuses that have gone on through the ages, as she says, with the anger at fathers or father figures. Now, Tony was a father, and so are you. Yeah. Honestly, I hadn't really thought about that in all yeah. the introspection I've been doing since July. Well, that's interesting. Again, we've heard some people weigh in that uh, have researched this or have psychic impressions of the place, and that has been mentioned. I just thought it was really interesting that it was mentioned here in this show by a psychiatrist. Yeah. Not a psychic. Yeah. So just think about that as we progress in the show here. Well, to wrap up the talk about the sighting show, they had a noted parapsychologist on there, Carrie Gaynor, and uh, they talked with Peter James again to kind of wrap up what are their conclusions, what's going on there, and both of them, I believe, think that there are two spirits there, one good and one bad, and there is also a reason to believe that the bad spirit, Sally, may have followed the Pikmins to their new house. It's about time to go to the Pikmin interview, but before we do, that last observation, there's something about it that feels strange to me. Tony and Deborah know more about this than I do, and I guess we'll hear from them about it in their interview, but I'm still trying to figure out if Sally is the bad thing that's there. I'm, or I'm still trying to figure out what is Sally. If it even is Sally, right. or if Sally is a representation meant to disarm you, yeah. which is something that we've talked about before. Yeah. That'll I be in our conclusions feels, It doesn't well. feel right for me to yeah. call this spirit of this little girl, the bad spirit, but maybe it is. I don't know. Well, it's, it's interesting to think about. It's yeah, interesting to think about. There are a good number of possible explanations and feelings that people have, not just off the cuff, that people who have been studying this case have come up with, different feelings of what's going on there. And that is one of them, as you said. It's like, is it even a little girl? Is this something that makes you want to think it's a little girl? Because what do we see when we see little girls? We want to help them. I guess in my optimism, the other thing that I want to think is that it's more than one thing and there is something bad there, but maybe Sally's also there and Sally isn't bad. Maybe she's playful and maybe there's something else that's pretending to be her or maybe something yeah. evil is pretending to be a little girl. I, I don't know. All I know is that the evidence that we got did not feel like a little girl. That's a good point because that's more leaning towards my thinking here, not to get too far ahead of ourselves here but that there's not one single thing going on here. Yeah. All right. It's time for us to roll the Pikmin interview. We're very excited to play this. It was difficult to get in touch with them. In fact, it seemed like it wasn't going to happen due to their work. And we were fortunate enough that circumstances changed and allowed them both to be available for an interview so that we could talk to both of them for quite some time about their experiences at the house. And we also later on will be talking to their son, and his girlfriend, and now uh, by their own admission, common-law wife, because they've been together a long time, yeah. who is a fan of the show. We're kind of interconnected in uh, lots of fun ways with well, the Pikmins, which, is, I'll which is great. Yeah, and I'll tell you one strange thing that's happened to us since we went to Kansas is that a lot of strange things have fallen into place to yeah. bring the story to you. Yeah. Weird ways that we're not going to get into, but 
Yeah. Well, I want to get weird into some of them. Yeah, Not sure. in this, tonight's episode, but right. I do want to talk about some of the weird things that have happened. But Absolutely. But anyway, so we're going to roll this interview now. We talked to them for quite some time. Believe it or not, we did cut it down <laughs> from yeah. over two hours, or I should say Sarah did. So we hope you're enjoying a longer commute or stuck in traffic or have time to... Uh... Oh, by the way, I, we would strongly encourage you to check out the sightings episodes on YouTube. We yes. have links to it in the show notes before... You listen to this if you really want to get the full backstory and you're really into this because it will blow your mind. And then hearing them talk about that and what happened in the house, it's a great thing to come back to. So here we go. We're going to start this interview with Tony and Deborah Pickman, the residents of the Sally House in the 1990s who suffered some of the most extreme haunting you're ever going to hear about. Hello, Deborah. Yes. Hey, it's Scott and Forrest. Forrest is also on Skype, so you'll hear him talk. Forrest, say hello to Deborah. Hello, Deborah. How's it going? Hello, Forrest. <laughs> hey, good, great to finally talk with you. Hello. Hello. Are you there, Tony? I'm there. Nice to meet you, Scott. Nice to meet you. Okay. I guess what we want to do is maybe before we get into the actual story of the house and your experience there, which we'd love to hear from you. We'd also like to hear a little bit about your background, where you guys grew up, are you from the area, that sort of thing, how you met, a sum up of the things that led up to your life before you wound up living in that house. Scott and I have talked about this, but the story's pretty famous now and been going around, and there's tons of other podcasts and shows that have covered it, and we've certainly checked out a bunch, but our aim here is to really set the record straight and get the real story from the people that were there and and really either affirm some things that are true, as the story has been told over and over, and everybody just kind of mm-hmm. borrows from each other, but also dispel a lot of the myths that are going on around there. You know, that people, again, they, they don't really check it out too closely. They just keep repeating the same story. So oh, yeah. that's right. kind of our aim there, is really just to get the truth out there and have you tell your story as you lived it. Sounds, Sounds good. That's perfect. Okay, good. I was going to say that in a minute, Forrest. But okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to say it first. <laughs> okay. Get in there. Sorry. So let's get. Forrest, that's a, that's are a, you overstepping again? <laughs> yeah, it's a constant battle that we continually edit out of the show. So nobody, <laughs> right. nobody hears that part. <laughs> All right. So let's talk a little bit about your background and your history leading up to when you guys actually moved into the house. I grew up in Buffalo, family of three, in a little suburb, and you know, early on, I had an interest in the paranormal and spirits and always thought, you know, if I had the chance, I knew so many people had had experiences and I just knew if I had the chance that I would be able to have some sort of communication with a spirit, you know, that was when I was 13. You know, I I moved around the States for a while and met Tony in um, Kansas and then we moved in that house. So of course I've always had the belief of paranormal influences and activity and stuff. Tony did not, though. He grew up. No, I was, I was just the opposite. I've, pretty, I've lived here all my life, which I hate to say is 51 years now. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, I grew up basically Roman Catholic family, went to the Catholic grade school, the Catholic high school. Ghosts were just, it, it wasn't anything that we really talked about or you just, it was just kind of taboo. And I had no interest in it <laughs> whatsoever. So I... Uh, Moving into the house. Well, I can remember really, one yeah. conversation where you said you would be out of a house if you knew the house. Was- oh, yeah. I mean, I, you were- there weren't a whole lot of shows about ghosts back then. But when you did see one, you know, it scared the hell out of me. I thought there's no way. I know back then I used to just kind of blow them off because I'd never had any ghostly type stuff happen much. So total opposite of death. I didn't really want to believe in it, actually. So never put much into it. Yeah. And 
Go ahead. Expecting our first child, we knew we needed to move. So we were in search of a, a little house or apartment. And one happened to come up and available right next to his brother. And we went and checked it out. And it seemed to be perfect. And that was this little house on 2nd Street here. Okay. And it was great moving into it. There was a lot more room than what we had had before. And there was plenty of room mm-hmm. to have a family. We thought we'd be there for a while. So you guys were excited about it when you moved in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It was pretty stressful at first, you know, because we were pregnant, really needing to find a bigger place. And we were kind of in a rush to do it. We were had been renting a place and that landlord there had decided he wanted to sell the house that he was renting to us. So, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of time. And here's Deb just getting ready to have a baby. And she had it. And it was a really convenient. My younger brother lived next door. I had known the landlord that owned the place and really reputable good guy is actually a law enforcement officer here in town. He'd only owned the house for, I think it was like a month or two. Before we yeah, moved in. It was, yeah. Is that the current landlord, Les? Yes. Okay. Yes. So yeah, that's pretty exciting. Now, how many kids do you guys have? We currently three have boys. three. Okay. Our oldest was born in the house. I shouldn't say born in the house, born while we lived. <laughs> no, in no, house. I knew what you meant. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to clarify that so we didn't start any more um, like rumors. rumors yes. or, are you comfortable with sharing his name? Because I think I'm going to be interviewing him. Yeah, he, he wouldn't have a problem. Okay, that's Taylor. So Taylor's our older. So Taylor, for the people who've seen the sightings show, which is on YouTube in its entirety, all of the episodes, which is pretty amazing. I just watched them today. Yes, it is. He's the baby in the footage, right? Yes. Absolutely, yep. That's amazing. He was 16 months when we moved out. His wife is a fan of our show, listeners. Just uh, put that all together in your noodle. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> um. <laughs> They're not husband and wife yet. Okay. They're planning on it, but they've been together for so long. I don't want to catch anybody (laughs) when did Taylor get married? Oh, right. Right. Gotcha. So you guys moved into the house. So that was essentially your first family home that you had that was an apartment after you guys got together. Yeah. It was so nice because it was just ready to move in and start our family. It was perfect. Taylor was born just, what, six months after you guys got in there? Yes, we moved in December 31st, and he was born in June, June 26th, in 92. Okay, on the last day of 1992. Right. Yes. All right, you guys go ahead and tell the story, your pace. I'm going to be quiet and stop interrupting you. Just <laughs> We're going to let you do oh, your gosh, thing. Oh, gosh, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> don't know exactly how to start it off and run off with it. When we well, moved well, in, Tony? No, I was just going to go ahead. You're fine. Oh. I love you. <laughs> Um, when we moved in, you know, we thought everything was fine. Had no reason to think differently. But within a month, we had noises and different things happening that were odd. Pictures would they turn were odd, but or... they were things that you could rationally try to explain. I mean, it would right. be your lights would flicker, or they would for us they would dim, almost like we had dimmer switches. We did not because it's an old house. But the lights would dim. That was probably one of the first things we noticed. Yeah. And it may do it several times, especially, you know, if we'd be sitting around the living room watching TV. We had ceiling fans in the living room and I believe the dining room. And they had little chains with little wooden balls on them. And there were times when the balls, it was like someone was almost holding on to the chain and spinning it. The fan wasn't even be on. And... There were other times when you might look up and I noticed several times I would see it bouncing like someone was underneath flicking with your finger or something. You know, we still, we even when you see that, you still try to rationalize. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, the electrical 
we had so much electrical stuff that would, you know, things going off for no reason or that, that we'd gotten hold of the landlord and said, I think you have a short somewhere. And he had got a crew to come in and check it out. And we were, you know, assured there's no short. We can't find anything. The baby was always waking up. That's what we noticed right away after the baby came home. And for the longest time, we thought it was just the baby's acclimating to new surroundings and, you know, sleeping at night up during the day. And he was waking up like every night, hour on the hour. Yeah, it was almost like as soon as he fell asleep, he'd wake back up. There were times when it would almost be like, you know, he'd just wake up. It almost seemed startling. Yeah, yeah. it was was a startling cry. And it was very disconcerting. My sister knew of the problems that we were having with, you know, the baby sleeping through the night. And this was probably three weeks out. He should have had some pattern by then and hadn't. So my sister flew out for a week just to kind of help. She had had a baby like 18 months prior. And, you know, she had a little more experience than I did. So she came out and everything was quiet. She took the baby in the cradle downstairs and the baby slept through the night. I think she had a baby three nights before we took him back upstairs. And that had hardly ever happened. <laughs> the sleeping through the night. The, the yeah, it had not. All through the night. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Start, we started to feel like we were getting things on the right road. And we went over to mom and dad's for her last night. We spent the whole day over there. On the way home, we stopped and got some scary movies. And we figured we would just chill, have a little bit of time, adult time with us. Because we've been running around and seeing sights and different things. So we come back to the house. Tony, you you had gone upstairs. I had, yeah, I had gone upstairs to put the baby carrier and all that, put all that stuff away. And kind of walked by the nursery and noticed the light was on and there was these, forgive me because it's been a while, but I believe three stuffed animals sitting there in the center of the floor, kind of almost arranged in a circle. And if you know Deb, she's really, you know, when she's Anal. done with something, it goes, it goes right back to where it was. <laughs> and I thought, well, it's odd, but I just figured, Some well. people call that anal. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was going to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> But I had um, went down and asked him, you know, I said, oh, you two must have been up there playing with Taylor today. I noticed the stuffed animals. And they, you know, looked at me like I was an idiot. You know, we don't know what you're talking about. So we all three went up the steps and, you know, they were there. Floor, and we were kind of looking around the room like, okay, my brother lives next door. Maybe he was in here and he's just playing a joke on us. We were checking closets, looking for anything that might... <laughs> Any reason we could why teddy bears would be off the shelves and down on the floor, and we couldn't find anything. So we put them all back up to where they were up on the shelves, and it's probably what Deb several foot in the air and several feet away from oh, where yeah. they were. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were bears in the cradle. There were bears in, because we had two cradles, one in our room and one in the nursery. There were bears in the crib on the shelves and the little kid like chairs that were in there on the changing table. I mean, there were stuffed animals everywhere, and they were all being moved and before we left the room after we did our checking we left the room and we turned the lights out we put all the stuffed animals back and we headed down the stairs and we get down to the bottom of the stairs and look back up and the light is back on yeah we heard a click and, so and all we three of us look at each other and we creep up the stairs you know really slowly we're looking stupid now well, and we literally look like the Scooby-Doo gang going upstairs. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we got up there, and sure enough, the teddy bears were back on. The light was back on, and the teddy bears were right back where they were on the floor. And 
that was the first time I know for me anyway, the first time I could not rationalize how that happened. I mean, it was just a few seconds and these things had moved feet, you know, you know like quite a bit of area. I think, we were, I think we were all in that state. Yeah, and we so were we, just we so... We turned the light out, put the animals back, and went down again. The light didn't come back on. But I went upstairs maybe 15 minutes later, and one of the bears from beside the door was on the floor again. And so I yelled down at everybody, the bear's on the floor again. Well, by this time, now we're not letting any of each other out of each other's sight because we're thinking one of the others pulling a prank or something. We've checked for wires and magnets. The windows are closed. I mean, there's no way that drafts or animals could have gotten all these stuffed animals from these various locations and put them in the middle of the floor. So now we're all standing at the nursery room door, not speaking a word and not wanting to admit what we're thinking. Nobody wanted to say the word ghost because we just didn't want to. Yeah. I didn't even want to think it, but I mean, there was just no other rational explanation for it. And so, like, the courageous people we were, we gathered everything we thought we'd need that night, and we grabbed the dog, and we all went to the master the bedroom. TV, the and VCR, the kids, Taylor's, uh, cats, snacks, yeah. drinks. Just so we'd we never have piled, to leave that oh, room. We grabbed even the couch cushions from the, the sofa downstairs so Karen and I could sleep in the bed and you on the floor. Yeah, we ran in there and closed the door thinking we were safe from ghosts. Are you saying that some of the stuffed animals that were on the floor were actually coming from different rooms, or were they all in the baby's room? They were all in that room, just come from different directions in the room, like different corners, or one over on the shelf on the north side, one way over by a window on the south side. I mean, they just came from different directions. There had to have been over a dozen animals in there. Another question, in the one time where you reset everything and then you went back, how much time do you think had passed? By the time we got back to the bottom of the stairs, probably less than 30 seconds. Okay. Yeah. And you didn't hear anything? No. And we were glued together because we were already nervous. So we were were like watching each other like hawks. Like, okay, let's, we're going back down the stairs together. So we know that it's not one of us. And it just totally blew our minds. And the circle, was it, I've seen more than a few shows that try to depict what happened there. You know, everybody's, they're art directing it to perfection was it like a perfect circle or was it more kind of like they were tossed into a broad I mean, how precise was the arrangement if i, if I remember they were, right they it were was, setting up in the, in the middle of the room i mean they were sitting. yeah it, it was they like they were strategically like placed yeah yeah if i remember right there was exactly three of them just sitting there where they were almost like it looked like the stuffed animals were touching hands like in a circle were their backs to the circle or their fronts to the circle their fronts were to the circle okay And so you guys decided when you gathered all that stuff up, you're talking about the master bedroom, which is the one after you come out from the nursery and you go along the landing by the stairs into that room that is on the, in the front of the house. Yes. Okay. That was your main master at that time. And I guess, you know, that the house originally faced the other way. Did you know that? We did know that. We we found that out through research, but yeah, that's totally interesting. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's crazy, but uh, all right. So uh, how long had you been in the house when this happened? Well, about six months. Six months. Six months. Well, Taylor was born at six months while we were in the house, so this would probably be seven months. Okay. Because I think Karen came in August. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, what happened after this? All kinds of little things just kind of kept escalating. And every day I came home, he would show me something different. It would be, I know I started, a lot of times we would lay down at night, and I was hearing what sounded like footsteps running up and down the stairs. 
And a couple times, I swear to God, I heard little children giggle as they got to the top of the stairs. We had cats, so we when you're laying in bed, you try to rationalize. You're thinking, okay, it's those darn cats running up and down. Right. But when you walk out, well, and you and got out the top and the stairs, the top of the- yeah, and I could literally feel a couple times a breeze go right through me, and that's when I would hear the giggling of little kids. One thing that freaked me out that had started was we'd get up in the morning and we had pictures lining the stairs, our family photos, and they would be turned upside down. And then eventually it got to where they would be turned upside down. And I believe there was one that I can't remember, Deb, if it was just me or me and you, but it was cracked. The glass had been broken, but it was still upside down. On the wall still or taken down off the yeah, wall? Yeah, yeah still up on the wall but turned upside down we were when you get up in the morning they would be facing the opposite or on the wall and that one was cracked as it escalated we had we had had a lot of fires that yeah it escalated into fires showing up in the house fires Um, localized fires okay like candles would be lit um one day i came home and tony showed me we had two sconces in the living room and they had blue candles in them we don't light the candles. We have cats and, you know, with a baby and and stuff. It's more for decoration, too dangerous to light them. So we never did. We left the plastic on them. And what it showed me was the plastic was melted. There were like four digits on one side of the candle, the base of the candle, and then like a bigger, wider, like thumbprint right up on the opposite side of those four digits. And they looked like child, you know, size prints. I mean, they weren't too big for me. You put your hand inside to light them up. Yeah, they would be too small. The plastic cellophane was still over the candles. The wick wasn't burnt, but the wax. Oh, that's right. The wax was just yeah, heat, but no flame. Right. Yeah. And we had, um, I think it was Howard Heim, is whose sightings brought in back when they, you know, were doing this, and you know, he was potentially trying to rule out other reason for this happening and you know he said that you could apply heat source to it and could get the same effect i did try to and like with a hairdryer i couldn't attain that same effect i'm very out on that i i mean i can't see anybody else trying to mess with us and do something like that and it was just one of like hundreds of things we ended up having happened in the house so and what was weird guys is there was another reason when things would burn in, and when we say little fires isolated, they were several times, it would just pop up. And if you've ever seen a blowtorch light, yeah. that's how they would burn. It would just be a, and just straight up flame from two to three to six inches high. We had a teddy bear that sat by the TV and a few times it had done that. Yeah. We had company there and somebody saw a ball of fire come out of the living room and roll under the table and we picked it up and it was a, uh, when the baby's pacifiers had been burnt. <laughs> but things would burn we had from a the Christmas inside party. out. Yeah, we had a Christmas party, and we had probably 50 people there at the house. You probably think that's an awful lot of people to get into that little house. It was, but it, they were all <laughs> leaving, so they had to fit. <laughs> I don't know if you recall, it's a mop head doll. It's a doll made of, out of a mop head, a little straw hat on her. Yeah, sure. Yeah, we had one sitting on the stairs, and his brother came around the corner and said, you've got a fire on the stairs. And it was that mop doll. And what was really weird about it, of course, you know, Tony grabbed it, took it upstairs, doused it under the sink. He had burns on his wrist from running with this thing. But when it was 
out and everything, when we took a look at it, you could tell that the fire started at the nape of the neck underneath the hair. And the hair is actually folded back down on the mat, on the mop head mm-hmm. to make the head. Mm-hmm. And so it was pretty embedded under things. And the top brim of the hat burnt. Now, the hat is straw, very, very dry straw. That whole thing should have gone up. But that it was localized only around the brim of the hat and then under the nape of the neck was really unusual. And same with the teddy bear. It it was a, a how ring. Howard put it. It was almost like somebody had to take it completely apart, burn it from the inside. <laughs> and and no, it had, had like a ring burnt on its head, an isolated circle on its head where, where it, it had burned. I know what you're thinking, Deb, the flower, the rose that lit yeah. fire during, during the interview. During one of sightings days at the house filming, I noticed, I don't, I don't remember if it was me. There was a Actually, I think was it was on. one of the sightings. I just watched it today. You had picked it up off the window, so I don't know who noticed it, but I saw that okay. flower today okay. on the footage. Yeah. 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 They went back to look at the footage, and it had not been burnt the way we found it in the footage that we had just shot in that room. And what it looked like, basically, is that each petal of the rose had to have been dismantled and burned around the edge and then reassembled mm-hmm. because that's what it looked like. It was burnt kind of from within the flower around each of the, the edges of the petals. That one really threw Howard Hine. That happened when he was there. Okay. A couple of questions. Firstly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. calling back to a minute ago, Tony, when you said you heard the footsteps on the stairs, were those adult or children footsteps you feel like? It sounded like they were running fast. So I, to me, it sounded like children. Okay. And that that's why we kind of tried to blow it Actually, off. Actually, they sounded like fast running feet. That's why he thought that they were the cats and he was going to stand at the top of the stairs and grab one as they ran by. <laughs> yeah. It happened so often that I was, I got mad one night. I'll say, Oh God, I'm, I'm going to stop him from that. And I went out to get him, and I still heard him when I was there. And then this breeze just went by me, and I heard these little kids giggle, and it just sent chills down my spine. I think I just kind of come and creep back into the bed. <laughs> oh, so it wasn't the cat. Yeah, because I did, I used to, I don't have, I have a dog now, but I used to have cats for years, and they would get the crazy night runarounds or whatever. <laughs> so that's what right. you were thinking was happening. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay, and then my next question is about the fires. Did you ever find evidence of one, aside from the rose, obviously, this is a two-part question, evidence of one that happened that lit up and then went out without you never, ever noticing it, and then also... Did you ever get the sense, because they were so localized and starting in such weird ways, did you ever get the sense that if you hadn't caught one that you were in danger of the house burning down? I was always in that fear. In the back of my head, I was worried. I'd always felt like at this point in time, we kind of felt like maybe something was waking Taylor up. And, you know, he was a baby. He couldn't tell us. And I was thinking if it can light fires, it couldn't light the crib on fire or one of us. We went through a really rough period there. I know I was totally stressed out, worrying. Oh, my God. Part of it was because we were being affected and we were on opposite sides of the fence through the majority of this whole experience. The first part of your question asked, if I remember right, asked about if there were any seeming, if there were fires that we hadn't noticed that had like been lit and then put back out. And I'm going to say no, I don't recall, unless you do, Tony. No, the only thing I can recall is that the family that lived there before, um, we were told by one of the family members that they had one or two. Is that going to be Kelly? 
Yeah, Kelly. Yeah. And she talked about one incident up in the nursery where they walked in the window frame was on fire and they no one admitted they couldn't figure out how that happened. That's the only time I can think of that we could actually say. Well, did that go out, though? She was on sightings talking about it and talking about she didn't mention how they put it out, but she said no. she did point out that there's no outlet on that wall. Right, right. So you're still living there. What happens next? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing, that I, when I said that we were being affected in two different ways, yeah. I was still at this point thinking that this was a little girl's spirit that we were dealing with. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking it's an attention thing. Because it seems, let, let me, it, it seems, yeah, go ahead. Let me explain why she, by this time, after the teddy bear thing, we really wanted a real rational thinker to come in. And one of my older brothers is very, he's just that way. We knew that he could think rational and be calm about it. And we'd had him come over and through him, he had a boss that he worked for, had a sister that was a fairly famous psychic and she was going to be in town. He said, well, maybe I could get hold of them and she would be willing to come over. So she had come over to the house and I think you saw her Brian's sightings, Barbara O'Connor. Uh-huh. And uh, she had told us that, well, you have a spirit of a little girl in this house. And she just wants to be, how'd she put it, Deb? Just kind of basically. Part of the family. She, she wanted to be a protector of Taylor. She liked Taylor. Treated Taylor like it was her own baby. Okay. So and... that, that's one reason that Deb kind of took towards nurturing this. She's, you know, for her, she hears a. Yeah woman just had a child and her motherly instincts kicking in and she's just wanting to help this little girl where I could not do that. For some reason, it just felt really strange to me. I couldn't go through the house and say, Hey, um, Sally, if you're here, you know, come sit by me or, you know, I just couldn't do that. It just didn't feel right. And And of course this kicks back all the way to when I was 13 and I wanted my own ghost to talk to. So I was seeing things from a totally different perspective than Tony. Do you feel like you might've been experiencing two different entities at that point? And that's part of the reason there was a separation in your opinion of what was happening? Maybe not at that point, because at that point I hadn't experienced anything that I thought was demonic. I hadn't gotten scratches or anything really harmful. So I just thought, okay, we have this little girl ghost, but I just don't want to acknowledge it. I don't want a ghost in the house, so I would have nothing to do with it. It wasn't till And it kept trying to get mainly Tony's attention. There was one night I went up to take a shower, and when I got another shower, he had been sleeping on the couch. And I went to take a shower, came out, and he's standing in the hallway, turns around, shows me his backside, drops his drawers, and said, she bit me. And he's frantic. And I couldn't, yeah. I mean, I saw the bite mark right up on his upper, behind his thigh. And I just busted out laughing. And I know it wasn't appropriate, but. I was just laying watching TV mark. and all of a sudden a sharp pain on the back of my leg. It just felt like a really, really hard pinch. And I jumped up. And I'm, you know, I, I didn't know if I'd been bit by something or stung or. So I dropped my drawers and I've got these little teeth marks. They were too big to be in, an adult. Yeah, perfect, you know, just perfect shaped teeth marks too on the back of my thigh. You mean too small to be an adult? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. And Taylor didn't have teeth yet. Right. And it was a full set of teeth. Ugh. So it's like way up on the back of your thigh? Yeah, it was like, like excuse my friends, but right under my butt cheek. Right. On, on, <laughs> on the back, you know, there's so I'm no contortionist. So. Yeah. <laughs> 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 
Well, right. and then there was a time where we were missing the remote. I went up to take a shower or upstairs to do something. And you, again, were sleeping on the couch and you heard what you thought was me say, here's your remote, Tony, and put it on your chest on top of the blanket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when I came back downstairs and you said, well, where did you find the remote? And I said, what remote? I didn't find a remote. And he said, this one. You put it on my on me and said, here's a remote. And I said, no, I didn't. So not sure. Yeah. At, at that point, I think it's when we started thinking, well, maybe there's more than just a little girl here. Did you see Deborah when that happened or you just or you weren't like paying attention and you just kind of. I didn't. I, I was just kind of spaced off half asleep. Oh you know, laying there. Okay. And I, I just remember her voice saying, here, here's your remote. And uh, <laughs> I just assumed it was her. I didn't, you know, didn't really pay attention. We had a big sectional L-shaped couch and she could be on one end, I could be on the other and hardly even, you know, see her. So I just assumed it was, she had come back down and found the remote. So it was just nuts. So there were other it, times it really, where he thought he saw me. I had come home from work one day and I had walked in the kitchen I'd gotten juice. I think it was about seven in the morning or seven thirty, sometime around there. Oh and no, I wasn't, I wasn't juice. talking about that. Oh, I know, but I had seen the little girl before I saw anything that looked like you. And I, I turned around, and here's this little girl standing in the kitchen, right in front of the basement door. There's a door that goes to the basement there in the kitchen, and it didn't even kick in. I remember looking at her, and I'm thinking, boy, this little girl's dressed a little funny. She had on like a white outfit an old white outfit that the girl would have wore to church like in the 1800s or something. And she's staring at me. And then I realized, holy cow, I can see the door right through her. It just instantly kicked in that it's a ghost. And I freaked. I dropped the <laughs> juice on the floor. And I think I went running up the stairs. I think I was pretty much hyperventilating trying to tell Deb about it. I was so scared. Um, yeah, you were. What time of day was that? It was probably close to 730 in the morning. Wow. That was my first experience of actually seeing a ghost. And I believe I saw a little girl twice. It kind of went from a little girl to, I know at least two times that I saw what I thought was Deborah. I would be coming out of the bathroom and a woman walked by me and it looked just like Deb in the face. But she would be in 18th century, like a woman cleaning the house back in the 1800s. She'd be in that outfit and her hair up in like a bun, but it was her face. And she would walk by. I, I remember following her into a, oh, well, there's a room kind of opposite of the nursery. And uh, the back I followed her in there. Yeah, we just had stuff stored in there, Deb's sewing equipment and stuff, and nobody in there. And then I'd come right back out of there, and I'd walk in the bedroom, and there's Deb sitting there like she just got out of the shower. You know, she's half undressed. She's got her hair sopping wet and down. And <laughs> it really seemed to isolate me. Things would happen to me when Deb wasn't there, and it was so frustrating for me because I knew that people are going to think, well, you know, how many witnesses do you got? You're just making this up. And it just had me so stressed out. I'd gotten to a point to where I kind of, there's things I would quit telling her because she wasn't there to believe me. And she didn't want to accept that I was seeing these things. It was always, you know, oh, you've been working long hours, you're tired, you need sleep, you're probably just... Yeah, my logical self was trying to figure out why or how he was seeing some of the things or hearing some of the things that he was. And I kept attributing it to his lack of sleep because he was working that second shift and getting off early in the morning and thinking he had to be with Taylor and I during the day. And it got to the point where I just, I, I was not giving him any credit for what he was going through. And I, it was I, odd I wasn't because there for him. 
here's a woman that she always listened to me. She never doubted anything I said. And now all of a sudden I'm having this stuff happen and there's literally nobody to tell because if I told her, it's like it just went in one ear and out the other. She would almost laugh it off. And it just, well, I, it yeah, I would find reasonable explanations. Yeah, we did. And I feel bad now because how unsettling and how alone that had to have made him feel. Couple of quick questions, Tony. I wanted to know with the little girl, the times you saw her, and also this sort of doppelganger for Deborah. Did these things ever seem to make eye contact with you or interact with you or send you any kind of verbal, even verbal message that you could understand in your head? Or was it more like an echo or a shadow or aside from the one leading you around the house? What was the interaction like with them? The little girl, the first time I saw her, she looked like she was scared, like she had saw a ghost. I'll never forget her eyes were just wide open, like she had come across me by accident and I scared her. And I'll, I'll never forget her eyes. Same thing. They were just huge. <laughs> and as soon as I dropped the, the juice, she was gone. The image that I saw that looked like Deb would just pass me by like I wasn't even there. Like I said, I would be coming out of the shower or the bathroom, and she would just go by me. And, I, you know, I thought, well, that's awful strange even for Deb. But it escalated for me. By this time, I was hearing crazy stuff. If I tried to lay down in the bed, I was hearing scratching. I can't even explain the scratching noises in the wall. They were just so odd. It would be circled like right around your head and it would get really loud. It would sound several times like you had six to seven people there trying trying to whisper something. I could never make out what they said. There was just a bunch of loud and whispering. After seeing the woman that resembled Deb, there was one instance in particular in, in the master bedroom when I was trying to sleep and it started out with the scratching in the walls. And it went to this loud whispering, and I'll never, I'll never forget. I'm kind of focused on the end of the bed. There's a window that we had at the end of the bed, and what looked like, you know, how you'll see dust particles start to form. You'll see dust particles through the sun shining through. Mm-hmm. It started out as that, and as I'm looking at it, it just kept getting darker and more dense, and it would swirl around, and it got to the corner of the bed. And it started taking the form of a woman, but it was an, an older lady. And I, I always refer to her as the storekeeper's wife off Little House of Prairie. She looked like she was all in black. I, I remember a brooch she had around her neck. That's what she looked like. And she formed at the end of bed and just, I can't even say walked over because it almost looked like she was floating over. And at this point, it seemed like World War Three going on in the bedroom. We had two tables on each side of the bed with drawers, a drawer on each one and the drawers were opening and shutting and we had a waterbed at the time and I was being something was just like I was jumping up and down on the waterbed I was being sloshed all over to where I was literally flopping up and down off the bed tall boy dresser at the end of the bed and the whole top part picked up and just did a full circle and slammed back down and I literally thought I was going to die this woman come towards me I was just creeping back into bed you know I've never been so scared before and I couldn't even scream that's I couldn't get any noise to come out uh, and that made me panic more (laughs) but I remember her she'd come over to my side of the bed and her arm shot out and she had a black sleeve on with lace and she reached for my throat and I remember hearing the words I'm gonna she screamed that at me I'm gonna and when she said that this big blackbird shows up on her hand and then she just disappeared and I tell you, I, I still, I, I'm shaking now just telling you about it. It's still, <laughs> I'll never get over that. 
I've never been that frightened in my life. It was horrible. And when she disappeared, did all the furniture just suddenly stop? It did. It, everything just stopped. And I tell you, I didn't crawl out of bed. I slid out of bed and I was on my hands and knees and I could not get the door to open, the bedroom door. And I was in such a panic. I was screaming for Deb, trying to, but I couldn't get a scream to come out. And all of a sudden, Deb just opens the door and she's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God. I remember I being so mad at her. The with the baby. You were in the nursery? I couldn't believe she yeah, didn't I, hear I was okay. in the nursery just across the hall. And didn't hear the, the furniture, didn't heard, hear anything. Didn't hear the furniture. I did hear him call out. It was a strange kind of a, like a forced yell, but barely, you could barely hear it. Um, and so I holler back, what? Because he was yelling, Deb. And I was hollering back, what? And he wouldn't answer back. So after the third time, I'm like, what? And I go over the door and I open the door and he's like, eyes bugged out of his head and he's got this freaked out face. He says, couldn't you hear that? And I'm like, hear what? I had no clue, no, no understanding at all what he had just gone through. I literally, I didn't know if I was going crazy at this point. I just remember running so much through my, my head, like, am I schizophrenic? Am I having night terrors? Am I just, it was just horrible. And, uh, at this point, sightings had already been coming up. And, you know, each time they came up, things escalated. It would get worse for me. Scratches would get worse. It would happen more often. They had, I think, every member on their team experienced something. And then they'd go back and tell other yeah. team members, you, you need to come up here with us. You won't believe this. Yeah. And it was just, so much it was so horrible. The host, the host, Tim White, came out because there was so much talk. They had been up like four times already, and he wasn't on board with the fact that this was real. He's, yeah. you know, the spooked him. I knew that when I watched it. I'll tell you what, I can't believe you're saying that. I had, it was one of my questions that I wanted to ask you about because my wife works in TV. I know sort of the backside of how these kinds of shows work and everything. Forrest actually mm -hmm. uh, has a, a history and post-production as well. And the first thing I thought when he said, we're going there, and then they showed him in your house, I was like, he didn't believe it. The host never There's no way. The He's show. not going to go anywhere. He just stands in a, It's like, when did you ever see Robert Stack go investigate something? You know what I'm saying? On Unsolved Mysteries. Right. And when I saw him at the house, I was like, that tells you that all the people he works with are convinced something's really happening there. Or he never would have gone and he had to see it for himself. Right. What was he like when mm -hmm. he yeah. got there? You know, he, he was, was pretty nice. like, like very concerned. Yeah. You could tell he was skeptic. You yeah. know, I, I could tell, Right. but you know, to mm -hmm. me, I, I'm thinking all these people think I'm crazy. So everybody was skeptic to me, but <laughs> I think when he first came up, there was a few things happening, but he was still, you know, I think in the back of his mind, he's like, we're going to find a trick somewhere. And I think it wasn't until was there was time in the of, kitchen. You know, checking, yeah, was, check I'm this sorry, out, check that out. There just happened sure to be a, where, the, where any grass were coming from or the air conditioner on. They were trying to rule out anything else going on. So we kind of had most of everything shut off in the house so that, you know, there weren't explainable reasons for some of these things that were happening. At this point, I was watched. I mean, if I went to the bathroom, I was checked over when I came out, you know, I'd take my shirt off. They talked about that. Yeah. They checked to make sure there were no scratches, which I appreciated because, you know, they could have said, yeah, he went to the bathroom and scratched himself. So it wasn't until they, they did that, especially, um, they brought in Carrie Gaynor, parapsychologist and God, he was like my savior because he was so thorough uh -huh. in his work. Um, and he checked me head to toe. <laughs> Every time I went to the bathroom, he would stand. When I came out, you know, he, he would check me thoroughly. And 
the thing with Tim White, there was one instance I was in the kitchen talking to him, and I'm reading in his face that he's skeptical, and all of a sudden his eyes kind of got a little bigger, and he's pointed out that I started getting scratched on my forehead while I was talking to him. Uh-huh. And he took me outside and he said, look, you know, this point on, we're here to help you. If there's something we can do to help, we will. And they were a really good show to work with. I was really glad we went with them. They probably saw a lot of hoaxes. They probably went and, you know, and because it's bad for oh, ratings. Oh, sure. And because it's bad for ratings, they're not going to go on and say, well, you know what? After we shot this, we figured out that was fake. So if you're watching a lot of those shows, they probably, well, this is good. Let's not tell people we found a fishing string or whatever. And so to, oh, yeah. to come to your house and find the reality of it, which frankly is uh, something that happened to me as well on a much smaller scale. I think that, uh, yeah, that was an eye opener for him. I wanted to ask you, we're talking about the scratches, but for people that don't know that part of the story, can you uh, explain a little bit about how that started and, and how it progressed? Yeah, there was one particular day and I can't remember Dev, if we were spooked by something, but for some reason we were packing up, we were kind of in a anxious mood to get out of the house. I can't remember exactly what no, occurred. It was because you it was the day after the bears incident up in the nursery. Oh, that's you were right. We your just brother about it and a bear turned was, right in front of them as they requested and took a picture of it and it freaked them out. And so we were gathering our stuff and anxiously we were going to head over to my parents. Wait, what happened? And why? With the picture? My brother had come over and we were standing in the living room and he was holding the camera, you know, because we told him some stuff moving. He, he kind of made the comment, okay, Sally, if you're here, move the teddy bear. And the whole teddy bear just <laughs> in seconds just spun around on the table. And he actually got a picture while it's in motion. That um, was in the, in the nursery? No, that was in the no, living room. Oh, in, in the living room. Okay. Okay. And that and had us really there and the blur in it where she's like right in front of the camera. Like she wanted a picture of herself or something. Uh-huh. It just freaked us out. So we were kind of in a hurry. We just wanted to leave the house for a while. And in the process of doing that, I was putting Taylor in the car seat and he was upset crying. And I uh, was strapping him in there and it felt like almost like a bee sting on my back. And I thought maybe I'd gotten stung by a bee or bit by a spider. I just remember yelling out, ow. But I just, you know, finished putting Taylor in the car seat and we left and we got to my parents' house. And while we were there, it really started burning. My back was just burning. So I mentioned it to Deb and she lifted my shirt. And I just, I remember her expression was like, oh my God. <laughs> and I'm like, what, what? And that was the first scratching that had showed up. And there were three scratches in the lower center of his back. Two were straight, and one kind of went off towards the outside kind of direction. And that's kind of the norm of the scratches when he gets three of them. There's a pattern? Yeah, there, yeah. there tends to be three, and the third one will almost bend and kind of almost oh, cross kind out of the others. And we found a reason no, for goes, that. The no, more it we... goes off to the right. The, the, the right digit, the third right digit goes off to it's the right. It's done both. I so is it like an equal sign with the cross through it, like the not equal thing sort of? Oh, you think? There were some, like she said, some went off to one side. Some would, you'd have two that were straight and one would kind of bend off mm-hmm. away from them. It was always but then there one were other times when one would turn towards, there was always one that wasn't straight for some reason. And being in it so long now and working with other groups and investigators, we've come to find out that a lot of times that's a mock of the Trinity. Okay. When you, when you have a bad haunting, they'll, it will sometimes cross out. It's kind of like the father son thing. And it's like a mockery to try to 
cross it out. Wow. And it was funny because that's a prayer I used to say all the time in there because I, I didn't know a whole lot of prayers. Sure. I mean, I knew them, but I'd never memorized them. But that one I always knew. So it was a very common prayer. I said a lot. Those scratches wound up. I mean, I know from watching sightings, they escalated. And you had several cases where they appeared on camera in a continuous shot while the sightings crew was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. They Never. have like nine minutes of raw footage of a scratch forming on his torso over scratches that had happened like the week before, the day before, I think it might have been. And some would form, it would take, like that one took, what, nine, ten minutes, but some would just show up. I remember they came right. up. Right, one of them just showed up. People would have to point them out to me because a lot of them didn't hurt. I didn't know I had them until somebody was pointing them out to me. You're bleeding. But some did feel like occasionally you would feel it was just a super, I always refer to it like somebody stabbing you with an icicle and that ice just going through you. It was just a really cold feeling that went through you. And if I felt that, those tended to be pretty decent scratches. But I remember sightings came up one time and I think it, oh God, it was all night, close to 10 to 11 hours. They had me sitting in the living room with my shirt off in a rocking chair and Terry Gaynor would sit right there in front of me and he just stared at me and he was getting so frustrated because he's like, Oh my God, there's another one. They were just showing up. And I mean, these he were long hands up and you just couldn't six understand to seven inch scratches in front of him. He's like, this just isn't possible. <laughs> I was totally freaked out at this point because growing up Roman Catholic, the only thing I'd ever seen like this was the exorcist. Yeah. And at this point I, I'm thinking, Oh my God, is this happening to me? And I was so scared. And like I said, every time it seemed like sightings would come up, things seemed to get worse and worse. I don't know if it's the energy from all the people in the house. You know, I had no explanation. I just knew it got worse. So Deb and I would fight like, oh, my God. Some of our fights were just horrible. They're arguing because she would, you know, they would contact her and she thought this was the neatest thing. (laughs) It was so unlike her to just ignore it. Well, yeah, that part. But I thought it was the neatest thing because... I had started to do some research on my own on like the parameters of, of poltergeist activity or spirit activity. And it seemed like it was like telekinesis and, and all of these different things were happening in the house. And so I couldn't put it into any one category. And I thought this needed to be studied. I thought it was very different. I thought, I thought it needed to get out there to researchers or people in the know that knew how to deal with it or what maybe it meant or, you know, any, anything like that. So I was all for sightings coming up. I'm glad they did because it actually helped get us some confirmation and they actually got evidence. So it worked, you know, in our benefit. Yeah. But I, at the time, I was really against it. <laughs> well, that was what was interesting to me. Well, there's a couple of things I want to ask about. One is, do you feel like what was happening there was maybe working to drive a psychological wedge between you guys, or that was just a, a result of the circumstances and your different approach to the experiences? I totally oh, think, I it, think was. it was. Absolutely, yeah, they, they, there was a wedge driven between us. It was affecting me differently. I wasn't reacting to any of the situations the way I normally would. Normally, I am full of questions to try and, you know, make up my own mind or judgment or, you know, figure out how to respond. And I didn't ask him questions like when, where, how did it feel? Or I I just kind of blew him off. And that's not like me. I'm a logical, practical kind of person. I, I walk through scenarios to rule out, you know, things that you're supposed to rule out. Right. Yeah. And I wasn't doing any of that. 
I was turned into a totally different person. I, I honestly was. I just, when I was in that house, I couldn't think straight. And I tell you, the voices that I would hear would say horrible things. And I would hear things. It would tell me to kill Deborah. I remember just, if she walked by me, this is like the last couple months we were in that house. Whenever she'd walk by me, it's like I wasn't myself. All I could think was I just wanted to hurt her. I wanted her out of the way for some reason. It's weird because I almost felt like I was jealous of her for some reason. Like it's so hard to explain. I can't explain it, but it it had me to a point where I felt like I was being possessed because if I left the house, I was fine. I could function. I didn't have those bad thoughts, but once I come back, it was just like I couldn't be me. And all I could think were angry thoughts, horrible thoughts. (laughs) It's so bizarre. There's a story out there, or one of the stories that said that after you dropped the glass when you saw the little girl, that you had thought of taking the glass to hurt Deborah. Is that an exaggeration or, or something that was made up? Or was... <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, hadn't that, heard that one. I hadn't heard that one either. That one's made at up. That so point, that's what I, we like to clear yeah. up. That kind of hockey. At, like at this... that point, I was just scared. I, yeah, I didn't have those thoughts. What they're probably referring to is I had, and because I draw a lot, and I would do sketches. I was having horrible dreams in the house, and I would have dreams of killing Deb, of slitting her throat, really vivid dreams of taking a butcher knife out and waiting for her to come home from work. And my dreams, she walked through the door, and I stepped behind her and just slit her throat. That's how vivid they were. And there was a particular morning, and I'm so sorry for all the animal lovers, because I am an animal lover. And this is one reason I say (laughs) it had me under possession, but there was a morning I'd woke up in a horrible, horrible mood and all I could think were hateful thoughts about her. And it was almost like that day I was going to do what my dreams were telling me to do. And I remember taking a butcher knife out of the drawer. She had gone to work. I had taken a butcher knife out of the drawer. And that is pretty much the last thing I remember. I remember pouring a bowl of cereal and I turn around and seeing a cat at the milk And then it's like, I just, I blacked out. I remember leaving, I don't remember, but I remember coming home that day. I think I had gone to my parents' house. Uh And when I came home, here's this cat stabbed to the counter. I I do not know how to explain that. And I I hate that that happened. I literally hate that. But it did happen. And I tell that story just because I want people to know how severe hauntings like this can get. Because I had absolutely no control. I don't even remember it. But, I mean, we were the only two there. There was nobody else living in that house, so it had to be me. But you don't even know if it was you. No. I just know it was there when I got home. What would you say for if people were speculating that you that you did have some sort of psychological problem yourself, like paranoid schizophrenia or like all those things that you were wondering yourself? Have you ever been checked out for anything like that, or do you feel – Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I would be one of the first ones to say, yeah, that would have been one of the first, had I been an outsider looking in, that uh-huh. would have been my first thought. So yeah, that I definitely had that done. And even after we moved out, I hadn't realized that the house had caused me to have post-traumatic stress disorder. We happened to be given a talk in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And while we were talking, you know, we have a slide presentation playing behind us. And I just started looking at the photos and there was a lot of photos of the scratches and and the things we'd put up with. And I broke down like a baby. I started bawling up on stage. It just, it just hit me all at once. I'd never, I put it so far out of my head that, you know, when you're going through it, it was just, it turned into, I just want to survive. 
I just want to wake up and survive the day. And it sunk in that time. And a friend of ours happened to be there that was a policeman and said, you know, you have post-traumatic stress disorder. So I even, I even got counseling after that for that from being affected. So no, I, I don't, I can't blame anybody that, you know, would think, oh, he's schizophrenic. He has problems. That would have been my first instinct too. So how much longer did you guys stay in the house? What led to you finally moving out? And were there any other significant events that you wanted to share before you got to that point? I had tried to tell Deb about it, that things were getting really bad. And, you know, we'd be out of the house and we'd be clear. And I remember telling her that I feel like someone's going to get hurt and I feel like it's going to be you. I said, we need to get out. And even then she was still, it didn't sink in. Negative activity towards me in the house at all. You know, all the physical activity was on Tony. And so I just, I didn't understand this. And I thought, you know, he's just thinking way too deep on all this. And I came home one day and he had, he met me at the front door and he said, I'm trying to remember how he approached it. Bottom line was that he was in the master bedroom and had been shoved quite briskly from behind. I'd been coming out of the master bedroom, yeah, and something just hit me from behind and threw me into the stairway, almost like it wanted to throw me over it. I hit the rungs. I think it broke two or three rungs of the, the railing. It was three, yeah. And that, that even, for some reason, stopped him from going down the stairs. But it was that that I think just kind of, <laughs> for some reason, her attitude just changed. She was like, yeah, I think you're right. I we need to get out of here. When the sightings crew was there, you were upstairs outside the master, and that's when they saw on your back the letters M and C. Mm-hmm. That was a very eventful hour. <laughs> yeah. That, that was that, Peter. At that same time, he had a fire that burned the back of his shirt. Yeah, they didn't catch that. I had the, uh, we'd left that master bedroom after that happened. I had told Deb up to this point, or I had made up my mind. I was so tired of being the person on TV that it was focused on Yeah, being scratched. I was not about to tell them if I had a scratch or not, unless, you know, they saw it. I you decided something, to stop mentioning it. <laughs> I did. I seriously did. Uh, but Peter James was in the master bedroom and he felt something burning his face, like attacking him. And he was yelling at it. And while he's doing that, I'm in the hallway just pacing because my back just feels like it's on fire. And I think Deb kind of noticed it, and then Peter picked up on it. And Peter come out, Tony, what's wrong? And they lifted my shirt, and that's where the MC was wrote. Now, as we started walking away from there, we were going to go into the nursery. And what didn't show on the show was the sound man was behind me with the big boom microphone over me. Uh-huh. And he just pounces on my back and just starts hitting my back. He's like, you're on fire, you're on fire but they didn't get on camera because the cameras were all in, in front of us. But he said my shirt just like spontaneously combusted in back. He said it just oof, God. caught fire and it burned a hole in my back. So In the back of your shirt? You, the, your yeah, body actually. not in my back, in the yeah, back yeah, of the shirt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. By the way, I, I don't know if anyone's ever brought this up to you, or you noticed this, but they outed you. They said your first name in that scene right around there. <laughs> somebody said, yeah. Tony, yep, somebody goes... Notice. Yeah, somebody, you know, I'm a former editor, so I things like that stand out to me. I was watching it today, and it's when Peter James hears the voice, or the moaning, and then you hear somebody off camera go, Tony, did you hear that? And I was like, oh, they said his name. Because yeah. at that time, you guys were using fake names. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't until, you know, I'd go to work, and some of my coworkers saw it, and they're like, 
dude, you got that peacock hair that stood up in front. We know it's you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me just tell you, that was not the craziest hair that was going on back there in that sightings episode. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I went back oh, and told yeah. the, the producer there. Well, you know what? Yours was very stylish. <laughs> I was really talking about Peter James's insane mustache, which looked like a black cave that you could drive a train into. Oh, yeah. yeah. His, his mustache and snow white hair. were both black. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> what a character. So, yeah, seems like it. It must have been amazing to meet him. Oh, my God, it yeah, was. And he, I, at that point, had not had much faith in psychics to me anybody could say they were and i was really skeptical but peter truly amazed me he he came up to me privately and told me stuff that deb didn't even know you know from my past from things and just floored me wow i I don't know how he got the information so amazing man the thing i want to ask you about the mc was did you guys ultimately they didn't mention this on the show they mentioned all the finnies that lived in the house but there was an mc finney did you ever stop to think that there's some connection between MC and what was carved into your back? We did. And I, I know for me, it was more of a, one of the guys that lived here, did they do something that, yeah. it's, you know, another man in the house, is it trying to take it out on me? Cause I, I had no idea. Like I said, I, I grew up Roman Catholic. I never messed with Ouija boards, any of that. I was your goody two shoes. <laughs> well, I wasn't goody two shoes, but yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I didn't mess with that stuff. Yeah. I, I didn't want anything to do with the paranormal. So that's all I could think was that, Somebody had done something, and it was going to make me pay for what they'd done. Tony, it was when you're talking about being jealous of Deborah. it seems like whatever was there was projecting feelings that it had into you because it couldn't act in the real world, so it wanted you to do it. And so that mm-hmm. jealousy you were experiencing was the jealousy it was having because it was interested in you, whatever it was. Interesting yeah. that you say that because there was a time where, you know, Tony talked about us having that big, long sectional, and he was sleeping with his feet pointed in my direction. I was sitting at one end of the couch and he sat up in the middle of this, you know, afternoon nap and looked me straight in the face and said, he's mine. Now it was his voice. It was a little odd. And then he laid back down. It was almost kind of like a mechanical up and down. And you know, I kind of blew it off thinking, okay, you know, we just had our, you know, this was fairly early, probably, maybe it was probably four months old, maybe five months old. And I was thinking, you know, new baby, he's having a dream of protecting his, you know, his son saying he's mine. But in hindsight, I look back and I wonder if that wasn't a personality projecting through him mm-hmm. and talking directly to me. During the time that you guys were there, before you you know, they talked about an attempted exorcism on sightings. I mean, did you ever try like any sort of amateur type thing to get this to go away or to stop that worked or didn't work or maybe backfired or anything like that? We had a shaman yeah. medium. There's um, a come in known, known a member of sightings and she had come by and picked up that she said, there's something horrible in this house and, and we need to get rid of it and wanted to know if she could come back later and maybe... Uh, Sorry, that noise Please is my Please tell me cat. that's a cat. Because yes. ah! I'm about to... Sorry. Woo. Yeah, you too. <laughs> I just, just want to be like, one. did anyone oh hear my God. that? I is just, anyone else hearing that? I just had a flashback. <laughs> that was horrible. Okay. I had, uh, uh, I'll let my heart stop. Uh, anyway, <laughs> this shaman woman, she come back and she was like an Indian shaman. 
Um, she come back one evening and we'd all gone up and sat in the hallway upstairs between the nursery and, you know, where there's a spot where kind of whole rooms connect or little hallway. We'd sat in a circle and she was trying to cast out what was there. And we were all holding hands and I literally thought I was going to break her hand because it felt like somebody was just behind me, just pummeling my back as hard as they could. And it got so bad that we had to quit. And I've got photos of the scratching and bruising from that, that episode there. I think whatever's there is a lot stronger than people are willing to give it credit. And, and it's stronger and it's smart. Than, yeah. yeah. It's smart. You know, people always talk about the basement. There's rumors that a, a resident who came in later was had a cauldron or a, a pentagram in the basement and... Did you guys have any experience in the basement? Have you heard those stories or ever talked to Les about any? Is there anything to those stories? Now, when we lived there, we had a few little things stored in the basement, but we hardly ever used that basement. I think we went down one time to retrieve some Christmas decorations, and they were just covered with mold. So we we stopped putting anything down, and we just never used it. Do you think that there's anything significant about that New Year's Eve in 1992 that, you know, when you signed the lease, that it seemed like maybe a new beginning or was it an auspicious time or, you know, was there anything symbolic about that starting date? I think for us, it seemed like a new beginning. I mean, we yeah. we were, like I said, we were kind of pressed for time to find a place. I, I, we wanted a place. We had where... just gotten married as well. So married, okay. new baby, new beautiful house. Yeah, it was like starting our family. Okay. Great happiness. In that first year, though, was there any weird feelings? Did it feel totally fine uh, leading up to the first incident? It did. Yeah, I think, I, I think so. Yeah, totally. And even as we lived there, I mean, people say, how did you stay there for so long? We would go through a month to, you know, two months where not a thing would happen. And right. you would think, okay, we're imagining it or it's gone away and, and we're good to go. So you would just start to get to where life was normal and boom, out of the blue, something would start happening. This may not apply to Tony as much, but Deborah, you said you, you know, like myself and, and probably Scott, you know, you've had a kind of a lifelong interest in the paranormal. Did you or your family ever experience anything in the paranormal realm, you could say, leading up to this experience in the house? I'm going to go with no. I, my family, I came to realize, was open to it, still cautious about, you know, the experiences I was, I was sharing with them. Mm-hmm. But they grew to to trust that I was going through, or we were going through this. In fact, my sister was there, my mom was there on a few occasions. This is how great a family she has. <laughs> Most of her family had not Uh-oh. even met me yet when this was going <laughs> on. So I can only imagine <laughs> what was going through their heads when this was going on. Yeah, so I, I, I totally lucked out with my in-laws. Yeah. I hear not you know to mention that this was not my first marriage. Right. That sounds actually very similar to my family. They've always been very open to discussing these things. And we never really experienced anything major, you know, a few relatives had, but, but nothing just traumatic or anything. So it sounds a lot like kind of what got my interest peaked and my experiences uh, before we started doing this podcast. So the next question is about two spaces in the house that we both, well, one of them, Scott and I visited, of course, that was the basement, did you feel, Tony, something was weird about that basement from the get-go that you just wanted to shut the door and never go down there, other than the mold and some, you know, it's like it's not a very pleasing place to begin with? 
you know, honestly, I, I don't know what it was that kept me out of the basement. I just, I, I never even had the need to go down there. So I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't put much thought into it. And uh, on that hole where, where the bricks and stuff are, are kind of knocked out to that. Yeah. Yes. Back yeah. Kind of, that's just creepy. You don't normally see that. So that always creeps right. me out. But, you know, other the only that, bad thoughts I had, I had two dreams when I lived there that I drew pictures of. I would dream I was just. <laughs> Yeah, sounds crazy. But I was this little girl, and I'd been mistreated and almost locked down there. I had that dream twice, wow. and I would always, when I draw the picture, I was always standing up against one of the rock walls. But that came later on, you know, as we lived there. So yeah. But other than that, really, the basement was just <laughs> we had nothing down there really. So mm-hmm. there was just one the need to there go down. There was a time where we realized things were kind of pretty ugly down there, and that's when. Amy Allen came out from the Dead Files. This is the four oh, yeah. Dead Files, I think. And they were doing like a, a research and development kind of experiment with tuning forks. And they would hit the tuning fork and then they would put it on either the window or, you know, like the basement, the wall. The rock wall. The, the walls and, yeah. And we did it all over the house. When we got down to the basement, Amy was picking up on human spirit coming up from the floor area. She was seeing human spirits coming really up out of the floor. And no, at the out same of the back. Time, uh, yeah, the back, the dirt part of the floor. And then she claimed that there was one bigger entity that was not nice at all, like a horrible entity, and it was holding them it down. It was really bothering her. Yeah, mm. and she, was, she needed to get out of there. I'll, I'll add the tuning for experience. What they would do is they'd hit it, the tuning fork on something and they'd put it on the wall and they had me and Amy both put our hands on the wall because they thought maybe it would stir up some kind of energy and they wanted to know what we felt. And I got deathly ill just instantly from that basement wall. I, I had to leave because I, I thought I was going to puke. And Amy ended up getting a really, I believe, severe headache from it. And, and the wow. camera guy, I think it was the camera guy in the back corner, he was struggling with his heart. He said it was really hard to breathe and he felt a lot of pressure. This has to do now with kind of the sequence of events that happened. Uh, I think that's the night that Tony saw the little girl. People say that the dog wouldn't go in the nursery, would just stand in the doorway and bark at nothing. Is that true? Yeah, it's somewhat true. Three-fourths of the time, yes, it would not. It just, for some reason, didn't like to go in there. There was one particular day that I remember I, I had come upstairs. I was vacuuming through the house, and I'd gone up, and our dog was standing in the hallway just looking in the doorway of the nursery, growling. I'm like, Bo, what's wrong with you? And one time as I passed by the room, I heard the carousel over the crib turn, just kind of play a little tune. And I stuck my head back in. And when I did, it started turning to the point to where it, it just kept getting faster and faster. And all the little things that were hanging from it were like straight out. And then it came to a complete stop, like it hadn't moved at all. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, you know, I, whether the dog really sensed something there, but yeah, he did not like that room for some reason. When you went down to the kitchen for juice and you dropped the glass, that was after seeing the little girl. Uh, is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct. And then she appeared to be in kind of a, you said like old-fashioned dress, but was it really dirty or ripped up? It looked distressed? No, it actually wasn't. It was a the fun picture you see of Sally. It's probably the most famous picture. I had drawn mm-hmm. like in seconds because after I'd seen her, I'd, I'd run upstairs and I'm trying to tell Deb that, like I said, I, I was sort of almost hyperventilating. Well, really I've drawn all talk. my life. And she right. said, just draw it. Draw what you saw. So that's where that picture came from. 
But I remember it was like an all white dress, like somebody would have wore to church, like a, like a dress up type. And I remember she had a white ribbon in her hair. Did it look like she'd been crying or, or was upset? Did it look like she was trying to say something to you? All I can remember is her eyes were just, she looked scared like I was the ghost. Her eyes, I just remember, were, were wide open like she saw something she wasn't supposed to see. Was it true that once the glass broke after you dropped it, did you take a piece of glass and felt mesmerized or compelled to go upstairs and maybe do some harm to Deborah with that piece of broken glass? No, absolutely not. When that glass broke, I was so scared. I ran like a little girl. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I was out of that kitchen so fast. I, I think I jumped those whole stairs going upstairs. I ran up there and I was on my hands and knees trying to tell her what I'd just seen. So no, I didn't have time. I was too scared. <laughs> Feel free not to answer, of course, if you don't want to, but this is kind of the more sensitive part. You said you did have some feelings in dreams and just horrible thoughts and motivations of harming Deborah. Mm -hmm. that's true and then you continue to feel those horrible feelings throughout your stay there yeah is the longer i got it's so weird because i just remember at one point being really we have to get out of here we have to get out of here but when i was in the house a long time it would change it was like i i started feeling like i just had to get her out mm -hmm. she needed to be gone and then it kind of got to a point where i i just i don't i don't know how to explain it. it's like I didn't worry about getting out. That's that's what's right. so weird. I don't know what made that connection with Deb. It's almost like it kicked something into her to say, let's leave. Because at that point, I quit even thinking about leaving. It was more like it became more of a possession. I didn't want to leave the house. Wow. And at that point, did you try and leave the house and drive away that evening? Or was that not part of the story at that point? Gosh, that's so long. I'm trying to remember exactly what we did that evening. When I had come to my senses, we'll call it, and said, yeah, we'll find a place, we're moving. It was like three weeks later and we were out. Mm -hmm. Were there items that were flying around and uh, kind of launching themselves towards visitors? And like with Deborah's mother, did Deborah, did your mother have a lamp thrown at her? Um, no, that was, was actually Tony's my mother. mother. <laughs> yeah, it was Tony's mother and a lamp head started floating towards her. Tony called she out, was Deb? Because she I was, was holding, the enforcer of the house, and as soon as he did that, lamp hit the floor. Just she was between the kitchen and the dining room, and she was holding the baby, and she had gotten a little mad because the baby let out a little squeak. To her, she said it sounded like something pinched him or something, and it right. made her mad. So she was like, leave this baby alone or something. And about that time, a, a lamp came off one of the end tables and went towards her and maybe made it about halfway there and then just dropped to the floor. It was an oil lamp. And then just dropped to the floor before it got And the little boy who used to walk our dog, the whole basket <laughs> of mail went flying at him. And yeah, he Roy was... laying on the floor. That would be a definite yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's several people who've seen things flying. Yeah. Right. After you had left the house, Tony, did you ever find yourself on the lawn back at the Sally house not knowing how you got there? Yes, I did. It was one winter night. And... I'd walked nine blocks barefooted in the snow. And just when I woke up, I was standing in the front yard, not knowing how I got there, but I was wearing no shoes or socks. <laughs> that's, that's a true story. I haven't told a lot of people that, but yes, that, that's a true story. How long after you left was that? It had been a number of years. I mean, yeah, a number of years because that happened while we were in the house that we're in now. 
and it's pretty crazy. But I, you know, to this day, I have a huge, I have to fight the pole to go back. I still have a pole that just, for some reason, I just, I can't explain it. It's like I have a need to keep going back. And I finally put my foot down and told myself, no, you're not going back. But I do have to fight that pole to go back in there for some reason. Uh, oh, wow. Uh, well, I, Scott, Scott feels that and, I have that and same, the repulsion at the same time. I have the same feeling. I know the feeling you're talking about. Because, I, I mean, I'm and attributing it. I can't tell you how there are countless people that contact us each week, and they're going through that same thing. They've visited, and now they're having trouble at home. Everything from seeing a little girl to being possessed to having horrible things happen. But they all talk about that draw. That's all they can think about is going back it's to like the house. there's something there waiting for them to find or something. It's, I yeah, know, it's, God, it's I a know really powerful feeling. draw. Yeah, I'm I'm not having any of those side effects, thank God, but I I know what you're talking about. Wow. Okay. I have tried for years now to figure out exactly what that was, but I've never been able to pinpoint it. Like I said, I just I was not into the paranormal or anything. All I can think is I had, you know, I think it it picked the weaker person. At the time moving in there, I was I was not a very secure person. I had a lot of insecurities and I, I suffered from a little ADHD. And I think I was just an easier target, honestly. I think Deb was always more, she's always been a scientific right side of the brain type thinker. And I've never been that way. And I think I'm just more open to it. And once it got me, it had me, basically. Does it make you think twice sometimes when you see stories of crimes, like wondering if there was something, if there's things at work that are similar to what you experienced? Oh, yeah. It so does for several reasons. One, because I know it's like to almost not even be yourself or feel like yourself in that situation. I now understand that I can just remember those angry thoughts. But also the situations where, where I was in the bedroom and the noises were so loud, the dressers, and yet she can't hear a thing. When she's right next to the room, she didn't hear anything. And I can't fathom that. So now when I, I look at like the story of Amberville where the person claims, you know, how, how do you kill this many people in the house and this person doesn't wake up and they don't hear a shotgun or anything? I can honestly say I can see that happening because to me it sounded like World War III going on in that bedroom. I don't know how anybody could have not heard it. Do you think that was in your mind? Do you think it was making it, was tricking you? Like, and I don't mean that was in your mind like you're crazy, but I mean like it was tricking your senses and maybe it wasn't really happening. It just appeared to be happening to you. Yeah, I mean, it, that would be, a, I don't know for sure, but that would be for sure a, a total logical well, explanation. Well, but I did hear him. You heard I him, you him, heard him crying, but you time. didn't hear the furniture moving You around. didn't hear the noises. No, right, right. I did not hear the furniture. And to me, it was as loud as cannons going off. I mean, it was just horrible. So in either way, somebody's senses are being manipulated. Either it's tricking you into thinking that's happening, or it's tricking her into not hearing it happen. Mm-hmm. It's real similar to I don't I'm sure you've probably heard of the Ballista Axe Murder House up in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have. No? Have you? I have. Okay, not. there's actually several correlations with our house and that house. The, the addresses oh. are the same. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you know what Maria just mentioned that house to me? But where she said I remember the, her saying the, the address was the same. The woman's neighbor that found them. I happen um, to be flipping through a book of, on Ballista that a friend brought over one time. And I come to one page and I about lost my breath because the woman that I saw in the bedroom, the mean looking woman, looked identical to the neighbor lady that found the bodies in that house. I can't even remember her last name, but it was like (laughs) down to a T. It looked like that woman. 
Well, and the reason why I brought it up was we kind of call it the bubble effect because the murders in that house took place very similar to the Amityville where the whole family and two guests were slaughtered. Children all in bed, screaming and scared, and nobody heard anything. Small little country town, neighbors, you know, 10 feet away, and nobody heard any of this. So it's right. almost as if the house or the paranormal activity was protected by some sort of a bubble that didn't let anything outside the bubble be heard. I mean, that's the only thing we've come up to explain, like the Amityville or, you know, his experience in the bedroom or the Beliska. Yeah. And before living in Sally House, I've heard the stories of the guy that did the murders at the Amityville, you know, telling his story. And I, I remember thinking, you know, even when I was younger, that guy's so full of shit. But I can't say that now. I honestly can't say that after what I went through because it happened to me. Right. There's one final question then. When it comes to a spirit named Sally, do you think that that's really what's going on there? Is there a little girl possibly named Sally or some kind of spirit that is of a little girl? Or do you think that that is a character that something else there is trying to project to draw you in or to present as a kind of a, a sympathetic character? To disarm you. I think it's a little bit of both because I felt, or I feel like it did manipulate. I felt like it took the form of a little girl thinking, okay, I can win this guy over. You know, he's, he's going to be all fatherly and I can get... And it did, and it scared me. And then it took the form of Deb, thinking, it's my wife. And that still didn't work. And then it finally took the form of this old lady. And then the last thing I saw was, I can't even describe it. It came to the, the side of the bed as the little girl, and she was reaching for my arm. And I kept pulling back because I was scared. And the third time I pulled back, it grabbed my arm. And again, with the sound, it let out this horrendous growl. And it changed into something that I... I don't know how to describe it. It was like on all fours. It was hunched. It was like it was rotted. I remember seeing worms moving inside it. And so to me, it's something that took form. But we've gotten so many EVPs from that house where you actually hear little kids so much so that it got me feeling bad. I felt like, you know, after we moved out, I had heard some teams EVPs. And that's what got me over there in the first place because we were hearing these little children and I felt bad. I felt like here's these little kid spirits trapped in the house. You know, we got to go over and help them. And that's what got me back in there afterwards. It's a toss up for me. I, th I think you have a little bit of both. I think you have something very benevolent there that's got control. And it's, a, it's also got some things trapped there right. and it might use their identity, you know, work through them to win you over. I don't know. I just know it was bad right. <laughs> for, for me. It was bad. To this day, you still have experiences. Things still follow you depending on what's going on at the house. Yeah. Yeah. It has decreased a lot. And I think that's just because we've gotten, like Deb said, a lot more focused on realizing what could happen and we take more precautions. And But yeah, we've had stuff, everything from laying on the couch sleep and I catch fire. My kids have seen that a number of times. Jeez. From a knife coming from our kitchen, probably about 30 foot through our dining room and whiz across my chest and have to cut through my shirt and put a cut on my chest and hit the wall. So, in your current house. Wow, and what we found was the correlation with, you know, why is this happening? Well, we'd find out later that there was a group there being really antagonistic or whatever. Yeah, I don't night. understand so why. That's all we can correlate it yeah. to. 
that's not one I've heard uh, anywhere. So thank you for sharing that. Yes. Uh, I can't thank you guys enough. We're just so grateful that uh, you would share this much with us. Yeah, we really, well, we're, we're really appreciate it too. Yeah, because it allows us to share our experiences and maybe that'll help somebody. That's where our focus is. What comes out of the situation is what you make of it. And we've tried to make it positive and not dwell on, you know, what actually happened and how, you know, horrible it was. Okay. And you guys' questions probably put quite a few myths to rest. So well, that was our aim. And, and uh, you know, like you said, that's kind of the feeling that we get with people who are brave enough to come forward with their stories because you've experienced everything that some, you know, a person who does experiences when they make their story known to the public. And it's not all great. Mm-hmm. But it may help others who are going through this who will tell any doubters that it's real and it's horrific. When we are at the conferences, you know, after we give our talks, we have so many people come up and said, you changed my life. We've had people in tears at our table, you know, know that since we made it through our situation, they can make it through theirs. Yeah. And it warms our heart. It really, really, really does. Well, again, I want to thank you guys so much. I've got to go now in eight minutes and do a phone call about cattle mutilation. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm looking forward to it compared to this discussion. (laughs) It's a lighthearted subject, finally. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, we appreciate you guys having us on. We had a great time. Well, great. And, you know, yeah. let's oh, let's too. stay in touch. And Absolutely. I would love to come see you in person, but now I'm incredulous about the desire I'm having to return to Atchison. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll drag him there. I'll yeah. Drag him there. No, I, I'm just not going <laughs> yeah. in the house. I will come meet you guys. Yeah, you're more, you're more than we welcome. We don't do that either. Thanks again so much, guys. And uh, yeah, and we'll, and oh, we'll, you too. we'll talk to you soon. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. That was insane, Sarah. When Forrest and I have some downtime, we really enjoy watching our favorite shows on Amazon Prime video channels. What's that? What's Amazon Prime video channels? No, what's this downtime you speak of? (laughs) Yeah, good point. Well, we're still trying to figure that one out. But for those of you out there who don't know what Amazon Prime video channels is, it's one of the offers of Prime Video. When you join Amazon Prime, in addition to fast, free shipping, you also get access to thousands of movies and TV shows, including award-winning originals, all included with your membership, and available to watch on Prime Video. With Prime Video channels, you can then subscribe to and watch 100 plus premium and specialty channels all on Amazon, no cable required. You only pay for the channels you want. Yes, Prime Video channels is an Amazon Prime benefit. In addition to fast shipping with Amazon Prime, you can also have great entertainment delivered to you instantly. So you can create your own personalized TV lineup of shows you love from 100 plus premium and specialty channels like Showtime, Stars, HBO, CBS All Access, Noggin, PBS Kids, PBS Masterpiece, Acorn TV, and BritBox. All channels start with a free trial, meaning you can start with a free seven-day trial of any of the channels you haven't tried yet. And finding a show you love or are interested in trying out is really easy. With Prime Video channels, there aren't any additional apps to download. You can cancel at any time and no cable is required. You still don't have cable, right? Nah, and I'm kind of over cable at this point, mostly because with Prime Video channels, I don't need it. I first signed up with Amazon Prime Video channels to watch the new Twin Peaks on Showtime, but after that was over, I needed a new show, so I added 
wanted Ray Donovan, mostly because it dealt with all of the insider Hollywood shenanigans Scott kept telling me he knew about. And then we both got hooked and binged through the seasons. And guess what? The new sixth season of Ray Donovan premieres tonight, October 28th. Oh boy. Well, let's wrap up this show so we can be free to watch tonight. I'll be in bed watching it on my iPad, probably. <laughs> all right. So here's how you can stop paying for channels you don't want and only pay for the channels you want with Prime Video Channels. Start your free trials of over a hundred channels by visiting tryprimechannels.com slash AL. Once again, start your free seven-day trials of over a hundred Prime Video Channels by visiting tryprimechannels.com slash AL. So one title that jumped out at me in our latest course, the Great Mythologies of the World series over at the Great Courses Plus, was a lecture on the Bhagavad Gita. Oh yeah, the epic Indian tale nestled within the Mahabharata, and the one that J. Robert Oppenheimer quotes from when he was contemplating his role in unleashing the atomic bomb on the world. Yes, where Vishnu, embodied as Krishna, shows his full godly glory to Arjuna and says, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. You watch that course just so you can say that. Guilty as charged. But here's the thing. The Bhagavad Gita is the most well-known and influential Hindu story in or out of Indian culture, and one I've always wanted to know more about. And not just because some think the Mahabharata describes ancient technology. What? All right, just stick to the course and tell us something interesting about it. Okay, well, now I can see why Oppenheimer quoted it, because he faced the same moral dilemma as Arjuna, the warrior king who's paralyzed with indecision, whether he should do his duty or dharma and unleash death upon the enemy, or set aside that duty and spare his fellow mankind. Now, Krishna basically tells him to get over it, son, do your duty. And if you're worried about killing the enemy, remember that nothing ever actually dies, saying, Never have I not existed, nor you, nor these kings, and never in the future shall we cease to exist. Indestructible is the presence that pervades all of this. No one can destroy this unchanging reality. Now, Vishnu, as Krishna, is describing the true self, or the Atman, the Hindu term for the soul. And he goes on to say, Our bodies are known to end, but the embodied self is enduring, indestructible, and immeasurable. Krishna is talking about reincarnation. We learn so much from the Great Courses Plus. In fact, if there's a subject you want to know about, more than likely there's a course over there on it. And if learning matters to you like it does to us, here's your chance to sample the Great Courses Plus with a free trial just by going to this special URL. Yeah, learn about the great mythologies of the world or practically anything else just by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends for your free trial. That's right. Sign up and start your free trial today by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Hi, this is Christopher G. Brown, and when I'm pretending I did not make that Joy Division and Teletubbies video, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. Are you still with us? I hope so. I think that's a pretty amazing interview. I can't believe that we got to talk to people that actually went through an experience like that. Unlike the house in Pontefract, everybody's older or has passed away. And uh, a lot of times we come across these stories and you're very lucky to get this kind of information from uh, someone who's experienced it firsthand. Right. Well, it may not mean a whole lot to you out there listening, but I can tell you, I just now thinking about it and that as we were watching the sightings episode, there were a few scenes and a few moments in there, which I definitely remembered from watching it as it aired on television. 
back in 92, 94. Yeah. The first episode that visited with the Pikmins aired on September 11th of 1994. Yeah. And then the next episode was an update on that mm -hmm. the very next week. And then later that season, this was the third season, later yeah. that season, another follow-up episode happened. And the YouTube link we have actually doesn't have the very first one. It only has the second and third for some reason. We we haven't actually found the very first one. Right. There are follow-ups, but a lot of information there, and you get to see all the players, yeah. uh, which is interesting. But uh this is what blows me away. It's like a time machine. Memory is faulty, but that's really what the show was at that date. And it wasn't for my childhood, but uh, I do remember seeing that. And certainly scenes like Peter James, and again, he's got white hair, jet black eyebrows and mustache. He's very distinctive looking. And I remember him at standing at the bottom of the stairs, calling up to Sally, kind of whispering, it's like, Sally, it's like, can you see her? She's standing right there at the top of the stairs. And of course, as we said before, the camera whips around and you don't see anything, but he is. Yeah. Peter James is seeing her. And just the elements of the story and just the bleeding scratches appearing on camera, those stuck out to me. For Tony, that was a nine-minute continuous shot they have. It's not yeah. in the episode, but they had it in the footage and they talked right. about it because they're not going to show that for nine yeah. minutes. But nine minutes where this scratch appeared on his stomach and every time he got up to go to the bathroom or do anything, they checked him out. They made him take right. his shirt off. They checked him out before he went in, after he came out. And this is a sign of somebody who's not trying to hoax something. As he said, I was glad they were checking me out. Yeah. I wanted them to eliminate any doubt that I was having something to do with this. No, of course. She wants somebody to study this and uh, <laughs> verify it and document it. But what I was getting at is that what's kind of weird for me is now remembering that I had seen it on television as it aired without the use of DVRs back then or uh, even a VCR. I don't think I recorded it at all, just watching it live. And it kind of had an impression upon me. Little did I know back then, at that moment, that years later, I would be talking to those people. Yeah. Isn't that strange? That's very cool. And who could have thought that, like, wow, you know what? We'll be on a show that's on this thing called the internet, upon which they were doing a live chat with America Online. Yeah, at the so end of the sightings episode. There they was did an that. internet. They, we didn't yeah. talk about that in the interview, but at the end of the sightings thing. They did a live online with AOL, with yeah. people chiming in with their questions. That was also kind of groundbreaking because it's rudimentary, it's all text, but it's like live tweeting something, somebody yeah. answering, yeah. and uh, you know, before live streaming, of course. But yeah, just the thought just now, like, yeah, I remember watching that and then just thinking those people going through that one day will be on this thing called Skype talking to them. Yeah. That is one of the best documented haunting cases ever that happens on camera and in the presence of people with high-tech equipment at the time. I think you said, uh, I, I believe in the show they said half a million dollars half worth of equipment. Half a million equipment. dollars worth of equipment. Yeah, at the time, you know, thermal cameras. and Mostly uh, stuff you could get at a yard sale now for about 50 <laughs> well, bucks. Well, they, it's, <laughs> it's still not that cheap. What I'll no. say is that a lot of that goes, you know, could be plugged into your iPhone now. Yeah. At least a thermal camera add-on can be plugged into your lightning adapter. Yeah. So things have changed, but the ideas are the same, measuring the differences in temperature, movement, and uh, just visual capture, and having that uh, be electronic in nature and having been influenced. So Yeah, and I wanted to say a few more things about the Pikmins before we move on to our interview with Maria Miller, the director of tourism. They were so gracious in talking to us, and they stayed on the phone with us for such a long time, answered every question, and, and before we even started the interview, informed me that nothing was taboo. They yeah. said we can ask them anything yeah. we wanted. And I just wanted to thank them for being so remarkably candid, because they shared a lot of information that was very, very personal, and that takes courage. Exactly. You hit it right on the head. And, you know, it's a bigger question for me and answer that when something like this that's 
that traumatic and that unexplainable and just unimaginable to the everyday person, well, you can either let it really devastate your lives. And it has, I believe, in different cases with different people where they'll never recover from that. Yes. And they've taken the other tack of like, yes, it was traumatic. It was frightening. It's terrifying. We're still dealing with it, but we are tackling this head on. Yes. And it's not going to defeat us. We're going to try and understand this is what's going to happen. We're going to document it. We're not going to be afraid of it anymore. I mean, yeah, as I always say, I can be startled at any moment. You can see something very strange and it can upset you. But to understand the idea of what's happening or try to is a step in overcoming it and not letting it ruin your life, but be a really interesting addition to it. I applaud them for their bravery, as you said, and uh, their spirit, (laughs) pun intended, to tackle this and get out in front of it and to try and enlighten us all about what goes on in these kinds of cases. What is happening here? Because they've had a front row seat for quite a while. And one last thing I want to say about the Pikmins before we move on from this for now is that in the time that I contacted them and through the interview and even after we finished the interview, they never asked me or us to plug one single thing. They never asked for a single thing for us. We don't pay people to appear on our show. And so I actually had to reach out to them and say, hey, how can we say thank you if there's any way that we could promote anything that you're working on? (laughs) It took Deborah even a day or two to write me back. And she goes, oh, yeah, actually, yeah. We've been members of the Paranormal Task Force out of St. Louis for three years. If people would like to catch up with us on a more personal level, attending one of the PTF Paranormal Overnight Fundraising Investigations would get them there. We usually do all the Western Missouri PTF events and always have books available. So if you want to try to reach out to them or catch up with them, you can do that there. Also, Deborah's website is thesallyhouse.com and Sally is S-A-L-L-I-E. So those are just ways that you can catch up with them. And there's also books you can find too. And we'll have links to all of that in our show notes. So before we move on to our interview with the Director of Tourism, Maria Miller, Let's talk a little bit, just very briefly, about what happened after the Pickmans moved out. Right. The landlord at the, of the house at the time, Les Smith, had bought it as an investment property, as we said, just prior to the interview with the Pickmans. And he continued to rent it out, right? Yes. There were some, of course, tenants that came in after the Pickmans, because at this point, Les is still using it as a rental property. It's income property. So he's fixing it up. He's going in after the various tenants and cleaning it up and, and putting it on the market for renters. And so there were people like uh, Gloria Fish. She was the resident who moved in right after the Pickmans. From 1999 to 2001, Mary Liggett lived at the Sally House at 508 as renters. And it was reported by her daughter that there were some strange and frightening things going on, but it was non-physical activity. Certainly nothing as frightening as what the Pickmans went through. So from about 2004 to the present day, The house is basically unoccupied, except it's being rented out for people that want to visit and go do a paranormal investigation. And you can arrange for a a nominal fee to go investigate overnight, which is when it really ramps up. As it said, I think it says, as Peter James said, our nighttime is their daytime. And that's when the activity really gets exciting. So that's what the house is being used for currently from that time on. But it was interesting to note, kind of in the past couple of decades, no one has ever stayed very long. Well, on that note, it is time for us to talk to Maria Miller. And just to refresh your memories about who Maria is, she's the director of tourism for Atchison. And she's the person who took us on our tour there while we were there for the Amelia Earhart Festival in late July of this year, 2018. 
Maria was very gracious to uh, come on with us and talk to us about her experiences at the Sally House because guess what? She probably spends more time there now than just about anybody in the world because anybody that wants to go over there, she's got to go let them in. She's basically the key holder, much like Carol Fieldhouse takes care of the house in Pontefract (laughs) with the Black Monk. So she's in and out of there a lot and... She's experienced a lot of strange stuff. So well, she definitely has her own perspective there. And uh, she's kind of fearless. Yeah. <laughs> having to do that that much must give you a different take on things because having to be at the house with all these different people and teams, you will experience some strange, odd little things that you cannot deny. And so she has some thoughts about that. That's exactly right. And here she is to talk about them. I am the tourism director in Atchison, Kansas, which includes coordinating what we call haunted Atchison events and activities. How long have you been doing that? I've been doing it now for about almost two years. Okay. So you're, you know a whole lot about Atchison. It's not just the haunted stuff. It's everything, right? Correct. Yes. I do tourism for the whole entire city. What's really interesting for me is going into that house so much and with so many different people, when people have similar experiences that don't know each other and they're conveying that to me, I sit there for a minute and I think to myself, I'm the only person that knows 10 other people told me that same thing, or someone just told me that same thing yesterday, or somebody else had that happen to them. What are some of those most frequent occurrences that people aren't aware of that you hear about all the time? Sure. I've had several people talk about a woman that they see pacing in the living room between kind of the, that front window and where the table is back and forth. And in fact, yesterday someone was in that house and we were outside and they saw a woman. They're like, I just saw a woman in that window. Someone I had never shared that story with and there's no way they would know it. Also, there's a very layered, heavy feeling that people get in the master bedroom closet. And I've talked to a few people that thinks when you have that kind of heavy, uneasy feeling, when something's in the house that maybe shouldn't be or isn't normally there. I've had people tell me that they feel like whatever that is comes in through that master bedroom closet. So for that to be where people get that feeling on multiple occasions, I think is pretty significant. EVPs in the same spot saying the exact same thing. Certain toys that they've had encounters or interactions with that have moved or turned on on their own. Okay. I've been in that house before where we're down in the basement and we walk upstairs and I could see that person very vividly. So I, I was aware of everything going on and we go upstairs and, and there's a scratch, like someone took a fingernail right on, right across by their eye. That happened one time when I was in that house. Hearing humming, people have talked about humming or crying, coming from the attic, crying seems to be a big one. Uh-huh. So just kind of piecing all these different things together from different experiences, different people, and how it's the same thing. It's the same experience. What would you say to listeners uh, who would say, you know, this is a tourist attraction and all of none of this stuff is real. It's just people trying to get people to come to town. Like, how, how, how would you respond to that? I think people's experiences are always unique and always different. And I feel like until someone has their own experience, it's really hard for them to understand So I can go tell someone, I go in the house every day and here are some different things that I've had happened or different experiences I've had in the house. And until they've had something, I don't expect them to believe me. I don't expect them to say that 
they believe there's a presence in the house. But I think when you have several hundred people that go in there a year and spend the night and do these investigations to have all these unique experiences, yet things that are happening that are the same as other people, I think it's, sorry, that phone's ringing. Can you hear it? Yeah, I can. Do you, is it, will it stop? <laughs> I'm hoping eventually. Um, I mean, I would probably ask the same question, too, if I was someone that had read about this house and knew all these people were coming to this community. And I think when I first started almost two years ago, I wasn't sure what to think of the house. I had never been into the house. I had never really heard stories about the house, but I started having my own experiences. And those experiences have just validated my belief. Um, Actually, we had Aidan Sinclair, the magician in town, and I took him over to the house and I had some stones with me because it was the first time I had been back to the house since all of this happened. And they're in my pocket, and I'm kind of playing with them a little bit. And then we go up in the nursery, and the house seems pretty quiet. And then we leave, and I drive him back over to the building where he's going to have his show. And I look at him, and I was like, my stones aren't in my pocket anymore. And he's like, well, those are pretty deep pockets. I was like, I have no idea. They just disappeared. And he goes, well, maybe I bet you'll find them over in the house. And later that night, I was telling someone the story, and then they joked, you know, that Aiden took him, and he's like, I'm not that kind of magician. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I, have never, I haven't found them. I have no idea where they are. They were in my pocket. I leave the house, and all of a sudden, they're gone. And I don't have, there was a howl light. This is very new to me to learn about the stones, because after that whole encounter I had with the Newkirks, I'm like, one of the girls handed me some Palo Santo, and, like, they're telling me about all these different things I didn't know about. And I was like, maybe I just need to start – making some extra precautions. They're like, put lavender on the bottom of your feet, you know, make sure you do this. And then I'm going to mispronounce the Blackstone, black tourmaline. Is that what it's called? Yes. When you talk to the owner of the house, if you haven't already, he'll talk about a woman that lived there that was a witch. I haven't spoken to him. I, you know, I left that message. I still haven't heard back from him. So I'll try not to bug him, but should I call him again? <laughs> yeah, I would. I mean, he told me he would talk to you, so yeah, he doesn't normally kind of stays out of it, but I yeah. definitely told him you guys were good guys to talk to. And I think he worries about it because he doesn't want people to think that he's influencing what people think of the house. And I just told him, tell him what you know and nothing else. Just yeah. tell him exactly what you know. Yeah. And he was like, okay, I can tell him what I know. Okay. Because he doesn't spend time, he spends some time there during the day working on the house. I will tell you one time I was in that house, and this was last year before Christmas, and we weren't going to have anyone in the house for a couple weeks, we were just because of the holidays. And I was in there with um, a group of guys, this guy's girlfriend got him this guided tour in the house for his birthday. And I was like, no one's going to be in the house for a while, so... You know, if there's anything you want to want to share with these guys, because they asked if I would walk through and do some EVP stuff with them. And it said, clear as day, it said father. And I said, well, I don't know who that is. But and then it said less. And I was like, well, that was very specific. Wow. And I was like, well, less will probably be here. But I don't know if anyone else were. And then it said Agnes. And Agnes was the last member of the Finney family to die in the home in 1939. And that was the night that I heard the crying from the attic. So that was a pretty bizarre night. I'm like, I, see, how do you explain something like that? Yeah. 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 That's a good question. So, and it just seems like the more I'm in the house, I'm having more and more of these different types of experiences and around other people. So they're definitely shared experiences, but he actually shared with me that he had a college student in there for a few months. And then when you look at the timeline, you won't see this college student, which is really interesting. And he said that he was so scared of that, that he got scared of the house and he left. 
Okay. And that's Thus's words. So I thought that was kind of interesting. What would you say is the absolute craziest thing that you've heard of happening there? The one that maybe bothers you the most or stands out the most to you? You know, I don't know. I have heard everything that you can imagine from I had a bottle thrown at me. I had a chair thrown at me. I went home and I had, you know, stitches embedded in my skin. I mean, I've heard all kinds of things. And I'm like, do you have a photo of that? And then no one sends me a photo. So I think some of it is sensationalizing maybe uh-huh. things in the house um, and want people to hear those things. But I think for me, all I have to go off of is what I've seen with people I've been there and like the perfect fingernail scratch on the eye that was bleeding coming up from the basement when I was down there with that person that just formed. That was crazy to me to see that. Hearing what you heard, that was clearly something yelling into that at you, you know? Yeah. yeah. And when you have an experience like that, that's not just a something messing up in the recording or, I mean, that's something was there and something had something to say, you know, and the crying clear as day was when you hear something like that. I mean, I was frozen. Those guys were frozen and you just can't explain it. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I've heard anything and everything you can imagine about that house from the good to the bad to the really disturbing, but I don't necessarily believe all of that because I go in the house enough and I have enough encounters with people in that house that I just don't know that all of it is true. But I think a lot of it is, I mean, in terms of what you experience, but I don't know. I've never seen chairs being thrown or anything being thrown in the house. Um, I have heard people, like whole entire groups of people that have physically gotten ill and left the house. And that was an interesting night when they told me that, that a whole group left. It was all guys and they all got really ill. So I don't know if there is a little girl or if there's a woman figure that maybe sometimes just because of that heavy, strong male feeling that maybe she just takes it out on men a little bit. I don't know. I mean, I've heard everything from, you know, of course, Sally to there's also a couple little boys to there's this man that came with the house and is it, you know, and it could be Michael Finney because he died in the house and he's the one that built the house. And then that there's also a woman downstairs that pieces, another woman that's upstairs. I mean, I have had people say that they've seen a man in the basement, that this woman that a couple people have seen, she's also been seen upstairs and they describe her the same way. Different groups from different parts of the country that come into the home. I haven't had anybody tell me that they've physically seen the little girl or the little boy, but that they know they're there. And I did have someone take a photo two days ago that they sent me, and I'll send it over to you, where they caught like a face of a little boy in the window, and I've never seen that before. So it seems like different things present themselves with different people and at different times. And, you know, and I think, well, maybe this day last year, I didn't go to the house. So what if this is something that happens just on this day every year? You know, you think about that kind of stuff. What do you think the biggest misconceptions are about it? If you look online, again, it goes back to the sensationalizing. I think there are people that are like, don't go to that house. It's totally evil. And I don't believe that. Okay. It goes back to what I was telling you where sometimes I think there's something there, but I don't think it's with the house. And we have a lot of people when they talk about Atchison, they'll talk about, we say we're the most haunted town in Kansas, but we like to approach it as, you know, where history repeats itself every single day in the most unusual of ways. And there's different reasons for that. You have a lot of people that talk about our vicinity to the river and limestone basically built our town. You know, the building I'm in right now is an 1880 freight depot entirely built of limestone. And so people talk about how porous that stone is and how it can hold spirits. We have different mediums that have come to town that have talked about how noisy town is. One moved here and then moved away because it was so noisy, but she didn't feel like it was negative. She felt like it was human spirits, but 
her, along with a couple other mediums that have been to town, feel like there's one that maybe isn't so nice, but it can move. If it can move, then I think it's people's intentions or maybe people channeling it. Or So maybe if certain people are in that house and they're really trying to stir up something, maybe it finds its way in there. And maybe it's through that master closet where everyone gets that heavy layered feeling. But I spend time in that house where it's just me. Yeah. You know, where I go set the codes on the door or I go in and, you know, help pick up a little bit and there's a comforting feeling. And then there's a feeling like maybe someone's not so happy today or doesn't really want me here. And then there's a feeling of, I just don't need to be in here today. There's three very different feelings and three very different reactions. I mean, sometimes it's completely playful in the house where I've been in there with groups where they get a lot with their flashlights, they get toys turning off and on. And then there's other times where they get maybe scary EVPs like you got, you know, but in terms of the darker is in situations where somebody is trying to channel or somebody is trying to get something to happen. And so again, it goes back to intentions. So I was in the house um, with one of the talk radio guys from Kansas city that was doing a story on some of the different haunted things in town. And I did the walkthrough of the house, just like I did with you, just like I do with everybody. And he's taking some pictures of the stairs at the end of it. And I go, Oh, do you want to put some like stuffed animals or toys on the stairs for your picture? And he's like, yeah, that'd be great. And I go into the nursery and I can't find the raggedy Ann doll and I'm looking everywhere. And all of a sudden I catch myself going, where is the doll? Where is your doll? And I couldn't find it anywhere. And we end up leaving the house. I take him by one of the restaurants that's haunted for him to talk to them. And then I immediately have to go back to the house and give another tour. So I get back to the house and I'm doing the tour like I normally do. And then I'm explaining to them when we're in the nursery. Yeah. And then I don't know where the Raggedy Ann doll, you know, when I, you know, I was trying to get it for the other guy. I go into the room with the rocking chair and I open the closet and she's hanging right there. And she wasn't there because I did that same walkthrough with him. Right. And at first I'm like second guessing myself, like maybe she was there and I just didn't see her before. Come back to my office after that. I have an email from him. I didn't know that he had a recorder on in the nursery. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I don't know if this is anything earth shattering, but, and it's me asking where the doll was. And you hear this very faint there. And I was like, okay, again, it's all connected. And there's no way any of them could have known any of these circumstances. So that was creepy. Wait, and the doll was hanging? Yeah, by her hair, not in a scary way. But I, that's the only time I have actually physically seen something that was somewhere and be somewhere else. But when I caught it in the reflection in the mirror, that's, that kind of sealed the deal for me. Like, okay, this, this happened. And I'll be honest with you. They said that um, they had one of those things that can detect temperatures. Yes. Like a thermal reader. And again, even though I'm at this house a lot and kind of in this world, I'm, I'm still not familiar with the equipment and fully investigating and all of that kind of stuff. But um, they got like this mist figure over my shoulder in it. And then they said they asked me if I wanted them to start praying. And I nodded and I said, yes. And then they said at one point, I told them that's enough, which I remember saying that's enough, but I didn't know what they were doing or what they were asking. And then I kind of came out of that and they were like, you had this thing over your, sh your shoulder. Da, da, da. And I go, well, I wonder if it's still here. And I immediately took a picture of the mirror because on several different walkthroughs with town, whether it's through bloggers or media, I seem to get a lot with mirrors or windows, but particularly mirrors. And then sure enough, it's still in that mirror shot. So, and I just feel like the journey is just starting. Like, I feel like there's just so much to explore and so much to learn. And I think just like with anything, you have to be careful. Yeah. I agree. Why not? It's easy to be careful. Yeah. I don't go running in the woods late at night, you know? 
I'm so mind blown over this recording. I can't wait to hear your episode and how you talk about it and how it plays out. That's unreal. I'm curious how our listeners are going to receive it. And, you know, in the world at large to the point that people hear it. The last thing I want is people coming into that house to try to conjure some evil. You know, obviously I've already been approached by the church. Like, you know, we saw something on YouTube and we need to know if we need to protect the Eucharist because someone said black masses are happening in there. And I'm like, oh, I hope not. You know, but the good human spirits that are in there, there's good spirits in there, you know, and Sometimes there's dark in the house that's not supposed to be there. And I don't want it to be viewed as this evil place or this horrible place. And I know sometimes it is on social media, you know? Yeah. But again, I don't think that's, I'm 100% convinced that that's not the house. The house isn't evil. The house isn't bad. Right. You know? But there's something that can float. But that's no different than something that can, if your intentions are a certain way in your own own home, you can invite something in your home, you know? I think it's the same thing. It just sees more people and people go in there wanting to have an experience. And sometimes they test the waters, like, I'm not getting this, but maybe if I ask for something bad, or maybe if I ask, you know, maybe if I tease it, you know? Yeah, that seems like a bad idea. Yeah, that's a horrible idea. That's why I made it a point just to be safe, to lay down. I mean, I yelled at the stairs, like, you're not leaving here with me, you're not coming to my house, like, no. And so I, I'm telling you, I think it moves. I think it's just the one, or it can, maybe it can bring other things with it, or another one with it, but I'm, I'm convinced that it moves. Well, on that note, thank you very, very much for your time today. Yeah, no, thanks for talking with me. I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's positive or negative that you have that experience that makes you believe a little more. Um, I just, wow. Well, that was a really interesting insight from someone, as we said previously before the interview, who's there the most probably. Yeah. Uh, these days anyway. It's Maria. Yeah. She opens up the house. And so it's an interesting and I think important viewpoint from somebody who does spend a lot of time there and who, I guess like you, didn't know what to expect going in. But now that they have, has begun to form opinions. And as she says, a lot of things have happened that you just can't deny that you have to think about and you have to come to terms with and form your own opinions about. But we want to give big thanks to Maria and the city of Atchison and, and Jackie Prejean at the Chamber of Commerce, who's helped us out. But Maria really put the connections together for us and gave us access to a lot of resources and people that we wouldn't have. And it's really made this episode and this series so much more than it would have been. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So thank you so much. We really appreciate your help and, uh, and it's ongoing. And we hope you stay safe out there because we're hearing about new things every once in a while that have happened to her and interesting things, but possibly disturbing to some, but like the case of the stones. What's going on there? That's a new one. Where are those? <laughs> Where are the stones? It's also... It's new for that. But you know what it's yeah. not new for? It's not new for like Pontefract. It's like no, the exactly. keys and no. all the objects. It's kind of rare. Anything's that dramatic. Usually you, you don't hear about that stuff, but it, I have heard about it when we like to talk about it when it does. Because uh, what's the phrase, Scott? It's the transference of matter through solid... Oh, uh, interpenetration yeah. of matter. Exactly. It wasn't like they floated out of her pocket in front of her face and then went off down the hall. It just vanished. Yeah, they're somewhere else now. So and uh, matter can be neither created nor destroyed, so they have to exist somewhere they're, they're, well, by uh, the laws of physics as we know them. I maybe. guess the molecules are somewhere, yeah. But it's strange when uh, you have to open the place up and you participate in a lot of these investigations. And so that's a fun part of her job. And I think, as she said, she never really planned for this kind of aspect of her job. 
And so it's kind of new to her, but she's embracing it with a lot of energy and, and curiosity. But I just wonder, though, what else could happen? It's a trial by ghostly fire. <laughs> well, there is fire involved. Yeah. Well, fortunately, this, yeah. there hasn't been fire uh, no. with regard to her or any, or any recent tenants. No, and, and no scratches Although and all that. Tony is still dealing with that. Right. And it's nothing so physical and aggressive, but it's weird. And it's got to make you think. All right. We're going to wrap tonight's show up with an interview we were very, very lucky to get. Thanks to Maria, who you just heard from, we managed to get in touch with Les Smith, the owner of the house, who has owned it. He said 25 years, but right. I was doing the math. I think it's more like 30. Oh, really? At this point, yeah. yeah because, but she vouched for us. Yeah, yes, so he she was... vouched for us, and he agreed to talk to us. And he is the one, he bought the house, I think the Pickmans thought it was about a month or two months before they moved in. Yeah. So he's had it ever since then. And we were really dying to know a couple of things. One has he ever experienced anything strange there? And two, is it true that one of his tenants was a witch who locked the door to the basement and put a pentagram on the floor and a cauldron and started casting spells and conjuring all kinds of evil spirits? Right. Yeah, and Les provided a very valuable service and actually furthered our aim and goals for this episode, which is not only tell the story, but also set the record straight on a lot of these exaggerations you hear. Again, like a lot of stories gets picked up and repeated, and eventually nobody knows the real truth. So, especially with his experience, I've heard some really far-out things, and so we had some questions like, did this really happen? Because that's been our goal here, is to let the people that have experienced this tremendous haunting throughout the years tell their story and clear up some of these misconceptions. Okay, so before we roll this interview, we just wanted to let you know we're going out on this tonight because we feel like a show this long should be wrapped up. We hope you enjoy <laughs> everything that's in it, and we're going to be back in just a couple of days on All Hallows' Eve with the second part of this series, which will feature, among other things, the details of what happened to us, and specifically me, when we went to the Sally House. But for now... Let's talk to Les Smith, the current owner of the house. Hello. Hey, Les. It's Scott. How are yes. you? Yes. <laughs> That's fine. Just so you know, I have uh, a guy I work with. His name is Forrest, and he's on here with me. Forrest, say hello. Hey, to hello. Okay. Hello, Forrest. <laughs> How's it going? Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to talk with us. Yes. We greatly appreciate it. No problem. It. Just quickly, uh, I wanted to start out with a little bit of your background. Is my understanding, or our understanding, I should say, that you're a retired police officer? That's correct. There in Atchison or somewhere else? Yeah, here. Yes, okay. in Atchison. How long were you uh, on the force? Uh, 27, 28 years. Oh my gosh, you must have seen a lot of stuff there. I don't. I mean, I don't know. It seems like kind of a quiet town, but what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't buy that. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. It's, there's nothing quiet about it. Oh my gosh. Well, what I wanted to ask you was, I mean, obviously we're calling you about the house, about the Sally house. And I, the first thing I wanted to know, because we couldn't really find it anywhere, was how long have you owned it? Oh, now I'm guessing I'd say 25 years. Okay. When you bought it, did you want to live in it or you bought it as an investment property? No, I bought it as an investment for a rental property. Did it have any kind of history before then? Not that I knew of. Okay. Okay. Do you know who you bought it from? Do you remember? No, I don't. I okay. just a friend of mine sold real estate at the time, and he put me on to different ones. Okay. That was just one of them I bought. Yeah, it just looked like a good investment then. Yes. Have you ever lived in it? No, I have okay. not. Okay. One of the things that Forrest and I want to do, actually, is there seems to be a lot of misconceptions, a lot of things that aren't true and things like that out there. Do you mind if we okay. 
if we ask you about some oh, of that please. stuff? That's, sure, I'll tell you what I can. Here's our point and our angle on this is that, you know, these stories, you know, on internet radio shows and TV shows, where they keep getting repeated. And, you know, just from the people we've talked to, they'll say like, well, I, I don't think that's true or Les didn't say that, you know. So there's a bunch of just kind of facts or parts of a story. You know, they're trying to sensationalize it and, and add to it. Did you have a tenant who had, had defaced the basement and the, the, you had to actually uh, cut a lock to go down and see what was going on in there? No, I did not have to cut any lock. I just went, was inspecting the house and I went to the basement and found the pentagram on the floor. And the house, you had tore the house up, was tearing it up. And uh, so I seen that and that was more or less last straw. I said, it's time for you to move. Yeah, that, that happened. When did, about did the woman uh, who caused all these problems move in? Do you remember, like, about how many years ago it was? Yeah, I don't know. It was right after the Pickmans had left. Okay. She was after the Pickmans. Okay. Was it just her, or did she have her whole family there, like a husband and son and daughter? Uh, uh, just her, and if she had any kids there, I never did see them. She could have had, I didn't see them. Oh, really? Okay. So as we go through these, what I love here is getting the real story, knocking down some of these rumors here, because uh, a lot of people will say, like, well, she had six kids living there, but there were no toys or any, you know, much of furniture or anything That's like that. That's all made up, it sounds like, if you never saw any kids there. I've been told she had kids. Were they there when I was there? No, they okay. weren't. Okay. Were you there to read the meter or what was your purpose for that day that you no, I had somebody go in there and they told me, I don't remember who or why or anything else. I had somebody went in there and told me, you better look at the house. She's tearing it up. Okay. That's why I was there. In terms of being torn up, I mean, you know, you found the pentagram in the basement. Was the other stuff of that nature or it was just standard property destruction? Just property destructions. Okay. The banister going upstairs was falling apart. She wasn't taking care of the place. It was obvious. Okay. Was it anything odd about uh, the furnishings in the house? Like it seemed really weirdly uh, bare or didn't really have any personal touches. And then, you know, things like lots of dark candles all over the place with drippings down the side, except the wicks weren't burned. No, I, if there was, I didn't notice it. Okay. All right. That's an, all right. Another Would misconception. You talk about with her? No, I didn't. I've never witnessed that. Never. Okay. So basically, it looked pretty normal in there when you went in to visit and uh, check up on the place. Yeah. Okay. Because of that description that a lot of people are furthering, that you know she had uh, like black candles set up all over the place and every level surface, and then they're all melted down, but the wicks aren't burned. You know, I mean, people are trying to to pump up the spookiness there. But no. no, okay. But did it seem like your impression was that she rented that house specifically to do spiritual stuff there, or was she really just wanting a place to live and this was something else she was doing? Meaning, did she know about the house and purposely wanted to stay there to do stuff? I don't know. I really don't. Mm -hmm. I think she had heard something about it for that reason. Do I know that for a fact? No, I do not. Because I, I didn't even know her that well. Did she still live in town? I have no idea. Okay, okay. On the day that you went to visit, that was her last day there, you didn't have to cut any locks off the door. There was not... Uh, no, it was not, did not. ...barred up. Did you get a weird feeling? Because a lot of people say like, oh, well, Les had a sense of missing time or it just seemed really, really strange in there. Or did it seem just pretty normal? No, it was normal. Okay. I was probably mad, if anything. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, like, like with any uh, land, land. Tearing you know, up your owner. property. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 
Okay, so then the story kind of goes down, kind of going into the basement here. But you were going to go into the basement just to check on it in general, right? Just to check the whole property. Yes. Okay. Was the light out in the basement? Or was anything odd when you got down there? I don't recall that at all. Okay. I really don't. Now, here's another thing that gets mentioned a lot, that you saw some kind of, well, for lack of a better term, like a big iron black cauldron, like a witch's cauldron, a big pot there. No, did not. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So people, a lot of people saying she had a, like a big cauldron that she was uh, doing her business no. with. Okay. Were there any other kind of weird things, like also uh, jars stacked up with just some kind of weird liquid in it, or any kind of strange other than like you know normal storage stuff? No, it was just tore up. Like I say, no. Okay. I wasn't looking for anything like that. No. Right. Right. Did she have anything in there at all? Any kind of storage stuff? Well, it's been so long ago. I don't recall anything. I really don't. Okay. What's kind of famous about that basement is that there's a hole punched in the wall where it looks like some of the bricks in the the foundation there had been kind of punched out. So you can see that dirt-filled crawl space in there. Did she do that or was that always there? Oh, that was always there. Okay. Why it was there or why, I have no idea, but that was always there. So now here's where it gets kind of crazy. <laughs> so, so as the story goes, where it gets retold and retold, and, and again, thank you so much for knocking these uh, rumors down here. Uh, some of the stories will say that around this hole in the brick wall, there was kind of a, like a pagan wreath, like a Christmas wreath, but it had little weird figures attached to it or, or little kind of like carved kind of strange things. Was there anything around that hole or anything like that? Yeah, I remember a reef being there, yeah, but did she put it there? I don't recall that. I remember a reef being around there, yeah. Oh, you did? Okay, so that's interesting. So yeah, was who, a... what it was, it's just a Christmas reef. Yeah, could that's have been. That's what I right. say it was. Yeah. It was a reef, yeah. yeah. That's, I remember one being around there, yes. Interesting, okay, yeah, So, but it could have been like a Christmas de- decoration. Sure, yeah. sure, okay. sure could have been. The story, of course, uh, they're pumping it up to be more, you know, witchcraft kind of, kind of a druid stuff, and and uh, right. things like that. Okay, so now we're we're talking about the floor. With the light on, is that when you first noticed that she had actually painted something on the floor and that it looked like a pentagram? It was a pentagram, yeah. I'd seen it before. Yeah. I knew exactly what it was when I looked at it. Was it ornate in terms of like additional symbols and stuff like that, or was it just kind of a straightforward kids graffiti type of pentagram? No, nah, it was put there for a reason. In fact, you see names on the walls, too, which you can't see anymore. I got them off, like Kilgore or something like that. There was, I don't remember what their names were anymore. I had yeah. a friend of mine who was a Catholic priest, and he came in and looked at it, and then he told me to stay out. And that, that all happened, yeah. Those names, I don't remember what they were, Traeger or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't even remember what they were. Obviously, the you know the point we're trying to make here is that it wasn't just like a doodle, and she's just trying to be weird with no, the pentagram. No, 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 it was real. It was that yeah. that part was real. Yeah, yeah. She was trying to conjure something up. That's when yeah. I do what it was because I'd seen it once before in a cave here in town. There was some not well, I call them devil worshippers, and they were there. And I took this priest up there too, and uh, he's the one that explained all of me what it was. So I knew what it was. So does it seem like a little bit of that goes on in town or just she was kind of a lone wolf in that respect? She's just doing. Well, I said one time on the river uh, in this cave, I seen it. And then in there in, my, in the basement of that house, I was on the second time I'd seen it. Haven't seen it anywhere since. 
Right. That's kind of what we figured. It was kind of just a weird, strange one-off case there. But there were other names and maybe little symbols around this big pentagram on the floor. Well, they were on the wall. Right. On the wall, too. On the yeah. wall? Were they yeah, big they were or small? Uh, they were small. I'd say like three-inch letters. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. Did a kid do it? No, a kid wouldn't have had a clue what that was. Now, here's another thing that's uh, you know part of the legend is that you tried your best to get rid of or paint over this pentagram on the floor, but you know it still kept coming back. Like you, you could never get rid of it. Like there's always kind of some black smudges coming up, no matter how much you tried to uh, clean it or paint over it. Is that true? Yeah, I I had to paint it a couple times. Yeah, I did do that, and it like say it just. I, it's basically gone now. You can see where I painted it, but uh, I see that took a couple coats of paint. Was it black? Yes. Right. So it was just hard to cover up because it was black. Yes. Okay. That's pretty natural, like you said, it's just because it's black and you had to paint over it. So because we were actually there and saw it, so you can kind of okay. See well, it. you see it. That's what, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. Can't tell what it was. Right. It's just something kind of vaguely circular. In fact, Scott's uh, dad just thought maybe that's where the, you know, the furnace was or something before, because it just, it looks like a big, big round smudge is all right now. Yeah. I made it bigger than it was. So you couldn't tell what it was. Okay. All right. They said that while you were down there, I think on this instance, that out of that hole, you saw some hands come out or some kind of uh, weird blackened face or, or something, something creepy. Nah. Okay. <laughs> so nothing, nah. nothing reached out nah. from that hole. No, no clawed. No, nah. I wouldn't be going back there if it did. <laughs> because that's also part of the legend there is that you saw something weird coming out of the hole. But what you're saying is that really in that time, nothing was really strange on that visit in the basement. With her visit, no. Involving her in that thing, no. Has that happened to you before at other times? No, the hand thing, no. Okay. Have you ever experienced anything strange in the house yourself in all these years? Yeah, yeah, several times. Yeah, yes, I have. What kind of things have you experienced? Oh, you'll feel that cold chill go through you. Your hair will stand on end. Doors will slam. Light will come on. Radio will come on. Stuff like that. You're just kind of like stuff like that. You just don't, you don't even care. You don't pay attention to it or. <laughs> I, I do not pay. I'm not getting involved with it. No, I'm <laughs> right. saying no. huh? See, I had the, the little girl who used to live next door came over one day and she had her son was like two or three year old and we're standing there in the living room and the bathroom door goes slammed. So I mean, pounded it and it made me mad because I thought the kid did it. And I tell her, I say, hey, don't let him do that. And she looks at me and says, he's outside. He's not in there. And I went, oh, hell, he wasn't. <laughs> yeah. 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 He wasn't around. What do you think about that? I mean, what's your personal view? How does that affect what you believe? And I just unexplained. I don't know what it is. I'm not looking for it, put it that way. Right, right. But you do think something is going on there. Something happens there from time to time. Yes, it does. Yeah, I know it does. Okay, so kind of wrapping up the story of the woman who was the problem renter, what happened after you confronted her and said, hey, you can't be, you know, damaging the place and painting stuff all over the walls or in the basement? I didn't say that. I just told her to get out. That was it. That was it. I just, you need to get your stuff and get out of here. You're not staying here anymore. How did she take that? She didn't say a whole lot of anything. There's not much you could say. Yeah. Her her story is very, I mean, that's not even a big story, but her, as far as I'm concerned with her and what she did, I mean, there's other people that had better stuff than that. Yeah, well, it it does seem that way. We certainly talked to a bunch of people that do. Here's a question I'm curious about. You might not know about this because 
you only had the house 25 years, but, you know, Maria was talking about how the front used to be the back and the back used to be the front when First Street was still there. Yeah. Does that mean that porch was added later? I don't know how it was, but I know the back of the house used to be the front, yes. Yeah. Because you can't see it. Well, you can in this winter when all the leaves die out and all that growth came up, but the draw comes straight up to that house from the river. And uh, it was a draw. And how they added up and everything else, I don't know. But you can see by the way it's built that 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 was the front. And that was probably one of the first houses built there. Interesting. Wow. Well, uh, she kind of knew what you were getting at and knew what she was doing and didn't give you a, oh, yeah. didn't give you a fuss. Yes. She just got her stuff together and cleared on out of there. Well, she took most of it. <laughs> what she left, the rest of it went to the dump. There was a bunch of stuff left. I didn't wait on her. Was she your last tenant? No. There was another kid, a friend of my brother's, his school teacher, was in there. He was only in there about a week. He was going to stay for two months because he got a new job, and he stayed a week because his uh, son had gone upstairs and came down and says, he said, he heard the kid talk, said, who are you talking to? That little girl up there. Oh, right. <laughs> and he moved out. He moved right out. See, that's me right he there. He moved out. I'm sorry. He sure did. <laughs> wow. He sure did. He said, uh-uh, I'm out of here. Have you had other people in since then? I know there was, yeah. yes. Yeah. After the Peckman, there was, nobody stayed long. I don't remember how many, I just don't remember. Have you experienced in your ownership any sort of strange fire behavior? Fires, no. Okay. But aside from the door slamming, is there other things, that, is there anything else that stands out to you as particularly shot? Have you ever heard voices over there or sensed any or seen people that shouldn't have been there when it was should have been empty? No voices. Other things have happened to me. Uh, I, like I said, I don't like going into detail. I was up mm-hmm. on a ladder one day and a friend of mine wanted to walk through and I said, go on. He went upstairs and then I went, made some ghost noise like trying to scare him. <laughs> and I'm on a ladder about two foot high is all. And the ladder went out like somebody kicked it from under me, and I fell to the floor, and I was mad because I thought he had done it, but he was upstairs. Oh, <laughs> somebody wow. kicked the ladder out from under me. Yeah, I forget about that one. That's when I started getting a little area. I said, hmm. Did you get hurt? Hurt physically? No. Okay. Uh, no. Yeah. Wasn't hurt at all. Oh, that's good. It just startled me, but he, like, the ladder was kicked, and that was a weird. That was, that was very weird. Yeah. Do you ever find people trying to break into the house? All the time. <laughs> go around that house. If you was there, see all the screens that are messing. Uh, that's where somebody tried to break in. What do they do? They just get in there trying to hang out or do they don't damage it, do they? The inside, once they get in, no. Yeah. A couple of times they stole the book the or the register I haven't put in there. They've taken them. Hmm. All right. Well, thank yeah. you so much. Thank you so it was, much. It's yeah. so great to talk to you directly and, and clear up the misconceptions. That's what we like to do on our show is because... Yeah, set the record straight, you know? Yeah. Good. It needs to be. Yeah. 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 We agree. The problem is that people fantasize and they make all this stuff up and then the made up stuff makes uh, skeptics and other people think that real things aren't actually happening and that's not the case. It's just that some of it is made up and some of it's real. Yeah, really. And like a lot of that stuff never happened. Yeah. Scott makes a good point because it's like there's weird stuff going on there and, and, you know, it might be just we believe in the spirit world and the hereafter and all that and it could be just a few things but when you start exaggerating and, and tacking stuff on to make it more yeah, sensational. That, sure. 
it just doesn't do anybody any good other than maybe sell a few books or a TV show or yeah, something. Yeah, well, you know, I'm not selling books, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. That's, like, yeah. See, that's why I don't like to tell my stories because, oh, you're making that up. Right, and right. And that's why I don't like I let, let other people do it. Exactly. Yeah. So that was, you know, one of the biggest ones there that I, it kind of freaked me out was hearing that, uh, you know, well, when Les went down, the, you know, some hands reached out from the hole and they were Man, black and uh, charred. And, no, you know, I would have never been back. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not sure Scott will ever be back yet. Yeah, I got a weird recording, and I was yeah. only in there an hour and a half, and yeah. we got a weird recording up in the yeah. nursery that uh, that I'm still spooked yeah. about, and that was back in July. So. It, it was fascinating, though. We love visiting. It yeah. Was, hey, yeah. You, you need to listen to some of them recordings. Them guys that do that, they always send me, I got a box of that stuff. And hell, I'm not going to listen to that. I don't really have time to listen No, to I, I don't want to listen. You yeah. think, it's funny, before this happened yeah. to me, I was like, send, I want to hear all the EVPs, and now I've got that one in your house. I I'm like, I'm good. There you go. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, that's what I say. I'm good too. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Everything's good. That's right. Yeah. Like uh, when sightings came to town, I'll go ahead and tell you a story, short story. Sightings came to town whenever that was years ago. 92, 93 in there, I think. Okay. Yeah. Whenever they were coming to town, uh, they're telling all there's good spirits up there in that house and everything else. And they had set up some kind of system, you know, communication system. And I, I talk out, there's nobody there but me. And I say, hey, if there's anybody in this house, you don't want these people coming, you uh, call my house. I, was in my, I wrote my number down on a piece of paper. You call this number. You let the phone ring twice. But do it twice. You have to do it twice. And I'll know it's you. You don't want people coming here. And I didn't think nothing about it. And I left. About I was coming over about 10 o'clock the next morning to let them people in. The phone rings once and then twice, and I wait for the third ring. I'm not even thinking about it. Well, it don't ring again. So I head for the door because I, I didn't even think about it. And then the phone rings once, twice. I wait for the third ring, nothing. I said, so I pick it up, and all you hear is static. Then it hit me what I had said, and it, it was just static on the phone, just shh. I said, holy, that's, that scared the hell out of me. But then you went over and let them in. No, they were already in. I was going I told him, what was that guy's name? Whoever ran the show, I said, you finish up today because you're done after this. And they did. I don't know who it was. Yeah, that host. But I, I, I had them leave. They, yeah. yeah, they were, I don't know why he did that. I said it, it didn't even hit me until after that was over. I said what I had done and said. And that's when, like I said, I, thought, I called my, my friend, the priest. And he told me, you quit messing with that. Don't have anything to do with it. And ever since then, I, I don't, nothing. I'm not messing with it. So leave it alone. I did tell you, say one day, I was standing there and my hair got real cold and your hair stands on the end. And I told, I just said out loud, you mess with me and I'll burn this damn house down. <laughs> That's going to wrap it up for part one of our 2018 Halloween special series on the Sally House. We'll be back in just two days with a commercial-free part two. Happy Halloween. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. 
Hi, I'm Susie. Delta, Alpha, November, Indigo, Echo, Lima, Christopher G. Brown. Future Compensation. Future Compensation. Sierra, Alpha, Lima, Lima, Indigo, Echo. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.